Good evening and welcome to the City Council study session for Tuesday, April 27th, 2021. The first item on our agenda tonight is the comprehensive plan, Champagne Tomorrow 2021. And I believe that I am turning things over to Lacey Rains Lowe. Yes, sorry about that. I couldn't get my screen to share. Um, yes, so um, we are we have now completed the draft of the 2021 Champagne Tomorrow Comprehensive Plan Update. Uh, so I want to present that to you uh, tonight for the initial review as we open up um, sort of our 30-day review period um, with the community. So I know we've presented a lot of the information before. I just want to touch on the highlights of our existing conditions analysis because they really are the underpinning for the document. When we began the update process, we reviewed the current document. We looked at updated council goals, plans that have been completed since 2011 when the current plan was adopted. Um, things like you know, our updated um, North Neal Street corridor plan, those kinds of things, just to understand what have we completed? Um, where are we going? And, and in doing that analysis, we determined that um, the, the existing document really only needed targeted updates to reflect recent development and respond to emerging trends. Um, so again, what are those emerging trends? The best way to determine that um, and sort of test if we're on the right track is to conduct existing condition analysis. So we've presented these reports before, as I, as I mentioned, but they're really, really full of useful information. Um, you, can, you can view the entire um, suite of existing con conditions analysis reports on the project website. There will be a link at the end of, um, of the presentation. But I just wanna to touch on a few of the highlights that really helped to shape the draft 2021 plan. So the first is our commercial um, and employment center land use analysis. And in the past decade, we've seen significant change to commercial and employment land uses with, of course, changes driven by you know, retail shopping moving online. Um, that, of course, influences the need for warehousing, shipping, and so forth. And so we wanted to ask the question, are the right commercial and employment land uses in the right places and in the right amount? Um, and in, in doing that analysis, we realized that for the most part, everything looks like, looks like it's in good shape. We have a good balance um, and sort of distribution throughout the community. There were two locations that needed some updating, I guess you could say, for the future land use map to really balance them out. And that was Clearview, which is number one on the map, and Carl at the Field, which is number two on the map. Um, with Clearview, it appears that there's really too much um, sort of employment land use that's currently allocated and it needs to be rebalanced a little bit looking at um, current development trends and, and styles to add maybe some more residential use um, to kind of complement that employment uh, land use. And then at Carlton Fields with what they're you know, doing with building a, a campus style development, um, they, would, they would benefit from having a little bit less residential land use and a little bit more employment um, and, and medical office land use. The next analysis is the growth area analysis. And this is a, a really important analysis that helps us determine where urban services like sanitary sewer, road infrastructure, police fire response times, where those kinds of urban services are available um, and what that service boundary is. You can see on this map, the service boundary effectively um, is the yellow line with the triangles. That's the sewerability area. Um, and within that boundary, we can then analyze um, residential development potential 
within that. So do we need to be looking to expand services or can we really accommodate our you know, future growth potential, at least our fringe future growth potential um, within our urban service area? And in doing that analysis, we, we recognize that we have plenty of land within our urban service boundary that can accommodate future growth um, of residential development on the, on the edge of our community. The bigger challenge, I guess you could say, or, or question um, that we're left with, when you look at the three pink parcels, uh, those are parcels that have development approvals today. So they have, obviously they look like just farmland to the average uh, individual, but if you were to open up our files and look at um, what's on paper, there are streets and houses planned um, for, for all of those. That's about 400 acres, just those three parcels um, that are identified in pink. And yet, even though they've had development approvals for many years, there hasn't been movement. You know, there hasn't been interest to actually build that housing. Um, so that's a question um, that sort of remains. But definitely, we understand we do have the potential. And you know, what is holding back, I guess, that development from occurring is that, that trend question. And then finally, um, our demographic and community indicator analysis. And this is a really important analysis as well. Um, that really lets us look at how our population is changing and helps reveal what are those issues that the plan should begin to address. Um, so Champaign continues to grow, as you can see in the growth chart. We've always been growing uh, since the community was founded, and that's something that, particularly in light of recent uh, the recent announcement of the state of Illinois losing population, so that we'll be losing um, representation, Champaign's sort of an outlier, I guess you could say, for the rest of the state. Um, even though we know that our 2020 census numbers locally have not yet been released, we can expect based on our, um, our American Community Survey numbers that the census collects for us on an annual basis, we can expect about 10% population growth from 2010 to, to 2020. So about 900 to 1,000 new residents a year. Um, and those folks need places to live, obviously. Um, they also need to be able to find a place to live that fits in their budget. And that's a national trend um, that unfortunately we see applied locally that while rents and housing values are increasing, um, wages are remaining stagnant. This is always um, exacerbated by being a college community um, where we have high demand um, for rental and um, the, the cost of that rental is sort of infl inflated being a college community. So certainly something we wanna keep in mind there. Um, the other thing that's important to note is that about half of our renters are housing cost burdened and about 20% of our homeowners. So what does that mean? Housing cost burden refers to households that spend more than 30% of their income on housing. So that's rent, mortgage, utilities, all of that together, not, not just your rent or mortgage, but all of it together. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that Champaign um, isn't, we do have an aging population. Our residents age 65 and over have increased and that has increased um, in turn our, our median age up to 27 years. Um, and so those are just things that we want to track and to understand about our communities we're making sure that we're serving them appropriately um, and responding to those, those trends um, in the comprehensive plan. So what is a comprehensive plan? Um, <laughs> I guess I should have said that from the beginning. The comprehensive plan is the policy document that guides the physical growth and development of the city of Champaign over the next 20 years. But it's also a tool that ensures that council goals regarding economic opportunity, infrastructure investment, incremental development, neighborhood planning, all of those things are memorialized and then translated into action. So the plan has three main 
parts, the vision and guiding principles, the future land use categories, and then the future land use maps. Because we know that this is, um, you know, just a, a targeted or minor update, the vision and guiding principles are, are the same. They're consistent with the current document. Um, and obviously we've updated um, the actions and some of that text to reflect things that have been accomplished, obviously, since 2011, and to better frame the trends and challenges that we've identified that are facing us in the coming decade. Um, so our six vision statements are that we will be a growing city, a sustainable city, we will have complete neighborhoods, we will have a strong community identity, a healthy community, and we will also have complete uh, public facilities. Um, we're also realizing that there's really burgeoning interest in redevelopment and reinvestment in the established areas of the community. Obviously, as we looked at our growth area analysis and we're seeing you know, development that's approved but doesn't seem to have any action, we've seen a lot of action sort of in the core and established parts of our community. Um, and so that gives us a chance to think about how we're ensuring that there are housing options for our changing population needs, but also for changing resident preferences. Um, because preference obviously drives a lot of things as well. I just wanna highlight the things that we have changed in the document. Um, and really the, the changes or updates are focused in our future land use section of the document. So the future land use uh, chapter does have some new features, you know, kind of like you get an updated, uh, a new car, you know, you want some new features in there. So um, we wanted to go ahead and include some of that information that we realized in our existing conditions analysis um, about our you know, housing challenges and our, our changing population. We wanted to include that in the main document because sometimes when they just, when that information just lives in an existing conditions analysis report that's separate from the document, sometimes it gets lost. Um, so we did um, add that information into, um, into the document. And then another new feature um, is something that is called the development context criteria. So it's important to remember, um, you know, that this, that our future land use categories are not zoning districts. They're just, um, they're more generalized. Um, they're, you know, this is an area that should be residential, for example, this is an area that should be commercial, um, but it's not, um, as granular, and it shouldn't be, um, as a zoning ordinance document. Um, but we do want to be able to accommodate a range of things within, you know, what does residential mean, right? Um, and we thought it was best to put some of this information within the comprehensive plan. This is not new uh, criteria. These are, these are tools that we use frequently when reviewing a zoning case, for example. If you're looking at um, the majority of development proposals in Champaign, they're, they're by right, which means that, um, you know, they can just proceed by using the code as it is. Um, but if, but here and there, there are projects that um, might need what we call zoning relief in some fashion, or maybe they're provisional or something like that. That's where this context criteria comes into play. So this is um, what we call a balancing test, which is to say um, that not every criteria has to be met, um, but you shouldn't simply think because I meet one criteria, I have satisfied everything. Um, and again, this isn't new information. This is just information that if you are a staff person or a seasoned developer, or you're very familiar with zoning cases, you would understand that we use on a regular basis to help make those development decisions. But we thought it would be more transparent to put that um, directly in the document so anyone can look at those things that we consider when we're making those decisions. So finally, um, we have three categories for our future land use categories, neighbor, neighborhoods, um, 
which includes established neighborhoods, emerging and future neighborhoods, central city neighborhoods, university neighborhood. And then we have a new category called walkable neighborhood commercial, which is like a very small scale um, neighborhood level <laughs> commercial development. So something that's more oriented um, to the specific residents, not necessarily um, you know, folks from other neighborhoods. Centers, which would be neighborhood commercial centers, college and, and university campus, central city, uh, campus town, community commercial centers, employment centers, and regional commercial centers, and then parks and trails and open space, which that's pretty self-explanatory. Um, we also uh, have continued to use our growth area criteria. We um, as kind of introduced these in 2011 with the uh, current plan. Um, and this allows us to understand it and map where um, we have the appropriate um, infrastructure for development. It's there today. The majority of our map is gonna show as being tier one, it's ready for development. It has the things that it needs. Then just beyond tier one is tier two. So those are places where service extensions are required. Perhaps they don't have the appropriate sanitary sewer service yet. Um, and so tier three, of course, is beyond that and it's not yet ready. This is an opportunity for us to try to build in a compact and contiguous way, kind of direct development to where that infrastructure is already in place. And then as it builds out, then it's more appropriate to go a little further out to tier two and beyond that a little further out to tier three. Um, so that's something that um, we think is really important to make sure our city grows in an efficient way in a sustainable way. And so uh, this is a, a view of our citywide map I'm just going to show you a couple of our maps because viewing them and sort of reviewing them for detail in this manner um, is not the most effective way to do that, um, as you can imagine. Um, so one thing I do want to point out is that we have our citywide map, which is very important, but we also then break that down into smaller areas where we can zoom in, we can add annotations, we can add additional details. And so we have four growth area maps. So those are on the perimeter of the community and then four established area maps. On these maps, you can see where our extraterritorial jurisdiction is, which is the state um, determined uh, planning boundary of a mile and a half outside our municipal boundary. You can see um, our, where our boundary agreements exist with Mahomet, Savoy, the city of Urbana, um, and where um, we have overlapping authority with Bondville, um, for example. So. Um, that's one advantage of looking at the citywide map to look at those edge areas. This is another um, view of one of our growth area maps. So you can see in the north growth area map, the tier one, which is the area that is the most saturated in color. Tier two, again, just outside tier one is the area that has um, slightly less saturated color. And then tier three is the area that has just the outline. Again, we wanna direct development to where we have existing services. We're also including some additional information on these maps that we haven't in the past, um, including things like future trail improvements, transportation needs, um, some of our bike pet improvements. These are projects or improvements that are identified in other plans, like our transportation master plan, um, our pedestrian plan and things like that. We thought it was important to put these on the future land use maps so they didn't get forgotten about essentially when someone is reviewing a, a development proposal or someone's considering, you know, building something, um, they can take a look and see that information in one map. They don't have to um, be as familiar as we are as staff people to then go out and look for the additional um, elements unless they need to. 
And so where are we with um, the process? Well, number one, I definitely encourage you to take a look at the full document and really look at, at each of those maps in detail um, on our project website, champagneil.gov slash comp plan. So two Ps, comp plan. Um, obviously we're sharing this information um, with fellow units of government, um, with your direction, of course, uh, we have uh, public we will share that with the public. We have social media posts ready to go um, and we're conducting virtual stakeholder meetings now. Um, we have um, obviously <laughs> this meeting happening today um, and then we have a public hearing for the document, uh, the draft document scheduled for May 19th with adoption scheduled for June 1st. Um, so that is, uh, th that completes my presentation. I'm happy to take any questions you may have. Thank you, Lacey. I'm gonna ask you to stop sharing your screen so that I can see everybody. Thank you. Um, so are there any technical questions? I'm not seeing any from council members. Is there anyone in the audience who wishes to address this issue? Madam Mayor, I see no hands raised. Council members comments. Oh, Councilmember Kyles. We lost your Will Kyles. Not sure what happened. Oh, Councilmember Stock. I just want to take a quick moment, moment and thank Lacey and planning staff. I know this is a huge endeavor I always sort of enjoy seeing it. So it's always kind of fun to see where we're, where we're going as a city. And I appreciate all the work you put into it because I know that it's a, it's a large task. So thank you. I'm trying to get a hold of council member Kyle's. Go ahead, council member Beck. Um, the comment I had was about the development context criteria. I, I like the inclusion of that. Um, one of the things that I think we often miss is the nuance of what we're trying to look for in a particular area. And I think that that really does help with that. So I appreciate the inclusion of that in, in the plan. Um, and I hope that we can maybe even fine tune that a little bit more, but I, I do, I do like that. And, um, and I appreciate the inclusion. Uh, the other thing that I think, uh, I appreciate what, or that I want to mention about appreciating is the um, the information about housing that you presented tonight and our housing needs and what that looks like in our community, so that the community at large can see that as well. I think that those are important needs that we can need to continue to address, and um, obviously the comprehensive plan is a key piece to that. But um, but I'm glad that we got to see that uh, sooner rather than later. So thanks for including that tonight. Thank you, Councilmember Kyles. Let's try it again. Uh, I don't know how I got logged off, but just wanted to thank you for uh, the presentation. I think this has come at an important time. I know that while it was a county number, it showed that uh, you know that one of the things that keeps going in the back of my head or front of my head is the the fact that we are one of the uh, largest growing um, counties, which means as a city we're growing, and we have to think about um, all of the things that are that, that, that come with growth. And so as we progress with this plan and the conversations, whether it be um, health, uh, 
health, uh, economic development, housing. I definitely will be looking forward to uh, the public's input as well as where we need to go uh, in the future. Thank you. Anyone else? Councilmember Bruno? A couple of observations. I, I really uh, think this is an important document and I do thank the staff that put it, the, that have already put in the amount of time that they have and will in the future. Um, one of the, uh, one thing that jumped out at me is the dramatic demographic changes that since 2010, our population has gotten a year and a half older. I would suggest that for the average age of the population to get a year and a half older in just 10 years time is a pretty rapid change of our community. Now, maybe that was a statistical error because of COVID-19 or the census uh, picking up fewer college students, or maybe it just shows a dramatic change in the nature of our community, but it's like global warming. Uh, uh, one and a half year change is probably a pretty significant change in 10 years time and, and uh, communities probably don't uh, have those kinds of changes typically. The other observation I would make is I was thinking tonight about Clearview and the decisions and the decision process we did when we uh, discussed Clearview many years ago, uh, 15 years ago. And it dawned on me that another purpose of this uh, plan is to have a historical record of what were we thinking in 2020? Uh, because we, we've learned a lot by thinking, what were those uh, city council members thinking in the 1980s when they made a pedestrian mall in downtown Champaign? What were we thinking when we developed Clearview the way we did or M2 or One Main? Um, having a historical record of that will give councils in the future the ability to look back and say, you know, they thought this was going to happen with society, but here's why they got it wrong. And so governments get stuff wrong a lot. It's helpful to have a, have a good set of minutes. Of what was going on in 2020, 2021? So uh, that's all. Thanks. Councilmember Gladney. Thanks. No, um, I just wanted to say how much I appreciate the the effort that's gone into this, uh, particularly the thoughtfulness um, and the flexibility that's in this as well. And I think that's something that we'll need to um, have going forward. Uh, just I think just given the, the changing nature of our demographics uh, and and what I think is where our society is, is headed and what it needs. Uh, so I'm happy to see all this and I'm, I'm looking forward to building on it as well. So thank you. Councilmember Pianfatti. Thank you. I wanted to um, express my thanks as well. I This is a, a lot of work and a lot of thoughtful, um, critical thinking that went into it. So thank you, Lacey and um, the other city staff that contributed. Um, for me, um, the trend analysis was particularly interesting and, and I'm appreciative that it um, continues on and, and I would be curious to see sort of um, a continuation as, as things are probably going to be looking different even a year from now and, and three years from now and, 
and just the fact that um, we keep updating, even in small ways, you know, how this comprehend comprehensive plan may look. Um, and I, I would hope that in your stakeholder meetings that um, people do provide feedback on what they are thinking and what they would like. Um, I also like the fact that you put um, reminders about bicycle and pedestrian pathways and different things for developers, because I know um, that, um, especially in this past year, people have gotten more um, in touch with the environment in a lot of ways and appreciative of, of their surrounding communities. So thank you for that. Thank you, anyone else? All right, so our poll tonight is to direct staff to proceed with completing the Champaign Tomorrow 2021 comprehensive plan consistent with council direction and schedule for consideration at a regular meeting. So, Council Member Pianfetti. Yes. Beck? Yes. Bricks? Yes. Bruno? Yes. Gladney? Yes. Stock? Yes. Foreman? Yes. Kyles? Yes. And you have direction. I think I am um, on our next item, which is incremental development implementation. But am I turning it? I apologize. They told me and I forgot. Ben, am I turning it over to Ben Leroy or Rob Kowalski or both of you? Yeah, you turn it over to me. <laughs> uh, good evening, Mayor and City Council. Uh, Rob Kowalski, Assistant Director of the Planning and Devel Development Department. I'll be presenting tonight with Ben Leroy, who is the Zoning Administrator for the city as well. Um, we are picking up our uh, discussion with you on uh, the council goal of incremental development. And uh, what we're going to do tonight for our presentation is um, we're going to give a, a brief, a very brief recap on what is incremental development. Um, and then uh, Ben and I will present to you um, what we have, our staff has identified as the residential code barriers that exist in our zoning ordinance. Uh, barriers to incremental developments. Uh, and then we will conclude by highlighting which ones uh, we recommend that we continue to move forward with uh, in advancing to help address the council goal of incremental development. Um, so um, with that, let me share a bit here just for a minute. Uh, I do wanna remind Council that this is a city council goal and therefore it's a high priority for our staff to work on and try and implement. Um, the city council goal is our city expands economic opportunity and uh, the key strategy is to support incremental development by evaluating and updating city codes and policies to eliminate barriers to affordable housing, sustainable, uh, affordable housing, sustainable and neighborhood scale reinvestment. So, um, that's what we are trying to do. I'm gonna stop sharing for a minute and I wanna to, um, to orient you again to the concept of incremental development and maybe even more so for the viewing public. Uh, we wanna show a very short video from Strong Towns, which is one of the uh, um, leading forums for incremental development and, and topics alike on what is incremental development. This video uh, that I'll show is only three minutes long. So it gives a good overview, so I will. See if this works. Over the past 60 years, we have built millions of developments that we cannot afford to maintain. 
when what we really want is development that can, one, cover its costs, and two, actually improve as it ages. So now everyone's asking, how do we do that? The Strong Towns movement finds it helpful to learn from the past. If we wind back the clock to cities that could pay for themselves, in fact, cities that needed to as a matter of survival because they couldn't borrow a lot of money, what we find about these places is that they approached building much differently than we do now. Obviously, there were a lot of problems with cities of the past, but there is wisdom in how they grew. For the most part, and this is the important bit, regular cities were built incrementally by regular people. For example, This is my hometown. I live in Brainerd, Minnesota, but back in the early 1900s when this photo was taken, this was the middle of nowhere. You can imagine these lumberjacks stumbling off the train, cutting down the trees, planting some wood, and popping up these little shacks. 30 years later, this street would become this, two and three story buildings. And after another 40 years of growing incrementally up, incrementally out, and incrementally more intense, these two and three story wood structures would now be torn down and rebuilt in brick and granite facades. Let me ask a couple questions about this place. How thick was their zoning code? How many engineers and planners and economic development professionals did they have on staff? How many grants did they get from the federal government, the state government? We can go through the litany of things that we have convinced ourselves are so important to building great places today, and they had none of them, none. Yet, look at the place they built. It's pretty spectacular. How did they know how to build this place? It's really, really simple. They just copied what had worked for thousands and thousands of years. They looked around at the materials they had, and they said, how do we build what we know works? Today, we want entire neighborhoods totally built and beautiful right from the get-go. We like our new places to emerge fully formed, and then we expect them to never change. But that's not how life works. And cities are a lot like living things. As we all know, living things need to be equipped for change, or else they die. Living things start small, and they grow and adapt through times of scarcity and surplus. And if they're successful, they mature. A strong city behaves the same way. We can't expect to fix our cities and towns just waiting around for a big developer to come with a mega project. The kind of development we need happens at the scale of strong citizens, all doing whatever they can to leave their cities, their towns, and their neighborhoods in better shape than they found them. All right, let me um, get back to our presentation and I will turn it over to uh, Ben. Just a minute, please. Okay, go ahead, Ben. Thank you. Um, yeah, so to, to summarize some of the points from that video, as well as to, to recap our introduction uh, that we gave on the topic of incremental development in November. There are some key characteristics of incremental development that we'd like to impart. Um, it is a term that eludes a, uh, you know, a pithy dictionary definition. And so it's more helpful to think about the overall characteristics of what is incremental development. 
And I've pulled up an image that uh, you may find familiar from our last study session, which shows a block here in Champaign, the block surrounded by Hill, State, Washington, and Prairie, which very much embodies these characteristics. So what are these characteristics? Um, the first is that uh, we expect a small-scale evolution of individual properties to the next most intense use. When we talk about the intensity of use, for instance, we're talking about um, an increase from a single-family home to a duplex or a duplex to a fourplex. Um, we're not talking about single-family homes being replaced by six-story skyscrapers, but rather that, that there is a, uh, a small-scale evolution among this intensity continuum. But um, importantly, that there is an evolution, or that at least an evolution is allowed to happen. As you saw in the video, uh, the way that our cities have handled development over the past several decades is um, that we have nothing, a green field, uh, then a whole neighborhood springs into life at once, and then, then it is locked into place without any but the most cosmetic changes. Um, so that's the, the sort of predominant um, and current paradigm, incremental development expects small-scale evolution over time. The second is that there's a mix of building sizes, shapes, and styles. Um, in other words, we're not, incremental development is not characterized by homogeneity, um, but it's characterized by difference. And that difference reflects itself in the built environment, um, but it also reflects the very different ways in which we all lead our lives. Um, the fact that a, a, you know, a neighborhood that is all built with 2,500 square foot single family houses all at once and then never changes from that is a neighborhood that can only serve the type or can only serve well the type of households, the type of families that want and need that type of housing. But we know in our community, there are lots of different housing needs um, that can only be uh, addressed by lots of different housing typologies. And so incremental development expects a mix of building shapes and styles. The third characteristic is that there is a measured change of pace to neighborhoods. This ties into that first characteristic. So yes, there is change. Yes, there is growth um, over time, but the pace is slow. Um, the, the, uh, we're, so this is very different, for instance, from the, uh, the urban renewal uh, dynamic of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, where you know, a whole neighborhood would be bulldozed and something new would spring to life all at once. Um, this is uh, incremental changes in many different places in the neighborhood over many different years. Uh, the example we used six months ago was that if you took a picture of a neighborhood in year one and a picture of the same neighborhood in year 40, you might notice a lot of differences. But if you had a different picture every five years, you wouldn't notice much different difference at all because the pace is slow and it's dispersed. Um, and finally, and most relevant to our discussion tonight, incremental development uh, is only feasible when development regulations are more flexible and additional dwelling units are permitted, at least in the residential context. We'll be talking a little bit about commercial as well. Um, uh, we'll get more into detail about that last characteristic over the course of the presentation, um, but that is really um, you know, why we're here tonight, six months later, because we talked about what incremental development was, we got some direction on, uh, on exploring it further, and so now tonight we're centering the importance of, of um, amending our development regulations to allow this form of development if that's council's direction. Um, so our council approved principles here, uh, again, from that November presentation are one, to expand opportunity for housing choice and affordability within neighborhoods. Uh, two, to expand opportunity for small scale neighborhood commercial activity. And three, 
to ensure that changes to a neighborhood's built environment are gradual and compatible. And so our, uh, our, our next slides will talk a little bit more about how we anticipate achieving these goals. Um, when we met in November, we broke out, we presented a suite of actions that could advance this council goal and we broke them into six month chunks. Uh, we talked about a, a group of actions we could take in the near term over the first six months, uh, a group of actions that were more midterm actions that would take about a year in total, uh, and then some longer term actions that are a little more intensive or just they require some preliminary work done so they take 18 months. And so to go into detail about what our six month actions are, um, we, we uh, have created a web page that educates and promotes the community on incremental development. Uh, that's a web page that is in a very uh, base state right now and will be able, but is our platform for growing and educating um, as we get further council direction as we move on into some of the action items. Um, I'll jump down to the third bullet point, which we're also not really getting into much at tonight's study session, but um, one of the, the prongs of this is to identify vacant city-owned properties that could be um, offered up for incremental development. And you will be hearing a study session in early June um, that talks a little more about city property disposi disposition in general. Um, and then the one that we're focusing on at tonight's study session is that bullet point in the middle. We're talking about regulations in residential zoning districts that pre present barriers to the type of development that we're talking about tonight, incremental development. And so um, we spent the majority of our time in this past six months uh, identifying those barriers to residential incremental developments. Um, and it's, uh, they're, they're broad, some of them are very broad range and some of them are very small scale. I'll present five of the barriers uh, right now and then we'll go through a little detail on each one. Um, the first barrier is that we have exclusionary zoning districts within our zoning ordinance, as many communities do. This is probably the, the, the most broad of the, uh, the barriers, but we're mostly talking about the single family one zoning district, the single family two zoning district, in-town single family one and in-town single family two. Uh, so exclusionary zoning districts. Uh, number two, the second barrier that we identified is we have excessive lot uh, requirements or lot standards mostly when looking at the requirements, the minimum requirements for lot size, lot width, setbacks of uh, structures on lots, floor area ratio and open space ratio. Uh, the third barrier is uh, our zoning ordinance prohibits accessory dwelling units. A, an accessory dwelling unit is a second smaller dwelling uh, on a lot and um, uh, they are not currently allowed is because they would be a second dwelling unit on lots that only allow one or two at this time. Uh, the fourth barrier is um, not really something that exists in the zoning ordinance, but rather something we think is missing in the zoning ordinance. And that's the lack of a specific district that would allow smaller apartment buildings, perhaps limited by the number of units uh, in the building. And um, we'll get into more detail on that one. And then the fifth barrier that we've identified is our residential parking requirements, um, especially when thinking about possibly adding a dwelling unit on a lot what is the parking requirement that's triggered and uh, is that possible in, in all cases? So these are the five barriers that we've identified and I wanna go through, uh, Ben and I will both go through a little bit more detail on each one. Um, the first one is the idea of, an ex of exclusionary zoning districts. So um, exclusionary zoning is um, a, a source of a lot of discussion across the country right now. It's basically use, the use of zoning to exclude certain land uses from defined areas of the community. 
as one way you can define it. And to a certain extent, that's kind of the concept of zoning in general. Uh, when zoning was first um, used broadly in the 1920s, it was to make sure that industrial uses did not encroach upon uh, where people live in residential areas. And so the concepts of zones was created there um, to, to make sure that those places, the, the general health, safety, and welfare of residents was protected. But zoning was really taken to a whole new level in uh, post-World post War II with the concept of single-family zoning, uh, which single-family zoning typically excludes any housing other than one single-family house on one lot. Um, single-family zoning became a very popular policy among communities uh, uh, to create exclusive housing areas that could only be attained by some in the community and not all residents. Um, so it's somewhat analogous to um, redlining in a way, but, but via zoning. Um, what makes single family zoning so exclusive is the extremely short list of land uses that are allowed in that district other than just a single family house for one family. Uh, it essentially allows just a single family house and then you know, a collection of other quasi public uses that are usually beneficial to those, to those homeowners, including parks, schools, community centers and, and those kinds of things. Um, but also contributing to exclusionary zoning is uh, minimum lot standards. So not only in this district can you only have a single family house, but it also prescribes that certain development patterns strengthens that concept of exclusive single family areas, such as large lots, deep setbacks, an aesthetic that is determined to be most appropriate uh, for, um, for that uh, homeowner. And then um, also exclusionary multifamily zoning in, mo in many communities, including Champaign, is often confined to areas so that they don't conflict with single family zoning. And that has built up um, years of uh, conflict between the idea of single family and multifamily. And I don't have to tell you that some of the most contentious uh, public hearings that we have uh, are when multifamily seems to be proposed somewhat near single family and, um, and people see those as conflicting and problematic. Um, if you look at the zoning uh, in Champaign, uh, it's pretty interesting when you uh, look at the percentage of land uh, in all of Champaign, uh, excluding right away. So we, we do have zoning for streets, but um, when you exclude those from the map, 42% of all our zoning districts in Champaign uh, are this SF1 single family residential, 42% of our land area of property that is zoned. Uh, only 7% is zoned for SF2 single family, and only 15% of all the land in Champaign is zoned for multifamily. So you can see where your options are for building different types of residential. You're going to have um, uh, much more choice uh, in building a single family home in the community than um, a duplex or a building with multi multiple units. To change that up a little bit, if you just looked at the land that's zoned residential in Champaign, single family all the way up through multifamily, of the land in Champaign zoned residential, 63% of that is zoned exclusively for single family residential, 10% for duplexes, and 22% for multifamily. So the percentage for single family is even higher when you look at just the residential zoning. And this is Champaign is not uncommon of many communities are zoned this way. Some communities are, are much worse, if you will, especially suburban bedroom communities uh, where this was kind of their core mission to be a single family bedroom community. Uh, but um, many communities are trying to 
um, change the course of that and, and bring those percentages down and more consistent. So what are the, some of the uh, impacts of exclusionary zoning? Well, they uh, essentially work to keep affordable housing out of certain neighborhoods. Uh, they can often promote income segregation in communities. They um, it can lead indirectly to concentrating poverty in a community because uh, these become exclusive areas that only some can afford. They often result in neighborhoods that are not diverse. Uh, and just by the nature of minimum standards for lots, they promote a sprawling pattern of development that, um, that makes cities bigger in land area, but not necessarily more efficient. Uh, so if you look at, um, you know, it really begs the question, can these different types of residential structures coexist in the same neighborhood? Um, these images show just uh, uh, an example of the different kinds of uh, residential structures you can have from a one dwelling up on the top left to a duplex on the top right. And then the bottom three pictures show um, a three dwelling building, a four dwelling building, and then an eight dwelling building. Um, in Champaign, our, the way our zoning works is the single family home on the upper left uh, would be allowed, of course, in the SF1 zoning district. You could also build it in the SF2 district in any of the multifamily districts. It wouldn't be seen as harmful because it's a uh, low density single family home that it would be okay if you wanted to put that in a multifamily district. But this doesn't work the other way. You can't put any of those uh, three pictures on the bottom in any of the two uh, districts on the top, the SF1 or the SF2 district. They call that pyramidal zoning in a lot of way in a lot of communities. So um, the goal here is what is the appropriate uh, way to try and mix this up a little more? Perhaps an eight dwelling building is not appropriate in the SF1 zoning district, but is there some combination here that would make um, a mix more appropriate and make that SF1 and SF2 zoning district um, a little more inclusive. So I'll turn it back over to Ben. The regulation of use in a zoning district that Rob was just talking about is intimately entwined with the regulation of form. Um, so when we talk about form, we're talking about the development standards that dictate the size of lots, how big buildings can be, etc. cetera. Um, and in many cases, uh, existing development regulations uh, serve to advance aesthetic goals much more than they relate to goals around health, safety, uh, the efficient delivery of public services, or certainly some of those other things Rob mentioned a few slides ago, like the importance of, uh, of you know, delivering affordable housing, things like that. Uh, some that we focused on in our, uh, in our exploration to date have been uh, regulations on minimum lot size. Um, and all these I'll mention vary by, vary by zoning district. Um, so I'm not going to get into specifics about what the minimum lot size in and is in SF1 versus SF2, but um, let's say that we do have minimum lot sizes for each, uh, for each zoning district. We also have a minimum lot width requirement. Um, the width of the lot in the, at the front needs to be a certain uh, minimum standard. Uh, we apply front, side, and rear setbacks within which no building can be located or no portion of a building. Uh, we, in many districts, use a concept called FAR, or floor area ratio, which is a measure of, of the bulk of a building. And then in many of our residential districts, um, especially the ones we're talking about tonight, we, we also apply what's called an open space ratio, or OSR. And I'll just highlight for that, um, you know, that's a ratio that, that requires a certain amount of a lot to be held open, uh, undeveloped, not used for a parking area. It's separate from the setbacks. And crucially, 
the open space ratio requires um, 18 feet in each direction uh, for it to even count as open space. Next slide, please. So I want to take a look at um, how this works out in practice, um, especially when we look at one of the rare vacant lots in our older neighborhoods um, and compare it to existing development patterns. So uh, this graphic shows, this is actually turned 90 degrees um, to the right. So you have State Street there running left to right, but North is actually on the east or on the, on the right side of your screen there. Um, and this shows the intersection of State and Columbia. And you can see there is a, um, a lot on the corner there that is 66 by 132, it's currently vacant. And to the left and to the right of it, I've marked with an A and a B, um, uh, it's neighbors that are subdivided lots that used to be 66 by 132. And some point decades and decades ago before the zoning ordinance became what it is now, um, those properties were subdivided and developed on smaller lots. And so um, now we'll take a look at, uh, at whether those development patterns would be allowed today under our current regulations. The first is uh, location A. So this is the one to the south of the vacant lot, just across the alley. It has two houses on it. Um, and under, under our current regulations, um, these, uh, these lots do meet the minimum lot width standards and they, they likely meet the, the, uh, the FAR. I don't have precise square footage numbers about these houses. So, you know, they meet a couple develop, a couple standards, um, but they would not be permitted for multiple reasons. The lots are smaller than we currently allow. Uh, the buildings come closer to the, the property lines than the setbacks allow, and they don't preserve enough open space. Um, so developing that vacant lot um, the same way that its neighbor to, uh, to the south across the alley is uh, would not be allowed. And that's the case even though um, these, these, uh, this housing typology provides housing choice to people. These are you know, not a blight on the neighborhood. They are not, we're not constantly fielding complaints that, you know, that these houses are too crammed together and they're just an eyesore. Um, it's, it's something that blends into the neighborhood well in the present day but is prohibited from being built um, today. If you go to the next one, um, well, unfortunately, the, the pattern to the north uh, is even more prohibited um, because as you see, now the lot is no longer split down the middle, but we have one lot that's smaller than the other. And so that lot, um, that development is barred uh, for all five of these reasons. Um, a lot size is too small, not enough setbacks, not enough open space. But that building on the right there is probably too bulky for the lot compared to what would be allowed, and the lot width would be too narrow. Again, it's a development pattern that, that provides housing choice. I believe one of these buildings in the last uh, picture uh, was that is actually subdivided internally, so it provides you know a, multiple housing units within its form that looks like a house. Um, but again, all prohibited by our current standards. Uh, next thing I want to talk about is the concept of accessory dwelling units, or ADUs for short. Uh, an ADU is uh, simply a second smaller dwelling unit on a lot. So it's, it's conceptually different from a duplex where both dwelling units are roughly the same size. Uh, when we're talking about something called an ADU, we're really talking about something that is smaller and accessory to the principal structure, which is a, um, a house. I'll start with the image on the right to just highlight the fact that ADU, the concept of ADU simply refers to the fact that there is a second smaller accessory dwelling unit somewhere on the lot. Um, it can take multiple forms, of course. So you can imagine an ADU that is carved out of a basement 
or an attic with some internal walls subdividing the dwelling units. Um, you can imagine an accessory dwelling unit that is built attached to the house, typically in the back. Um, and many of them exist in detached form. They're above a garage or they replace a garage and they're, they're a backyard dwelling unit. Uh, there are many benefits to, to legalizing ADUs. Again, to touch on a theme we've touched on already, uh, they accommodate a variety of family and household types. Uh, they're excellent for people who want to have relatives living, um, living on the property, but would like to have some separation in terms of you know, having a, a wall between you and your family member, a different kitchen, so you're not always, always with each other. Um, but it also works for people who maybe uh, you know, want, to, want to live with friends in a different way. Um, lots of different family types uh, and household types are accommodated by this typology that are not accommodated by just a single family home. Um, there's a financial aspect to this at a very personal level, both for property owners who construct an ADU, um, it offers them a way to, to rent out a unit um, and make some, uh, make some money, perhaps cover the mortgage or part of the mortgage, um, so it reduces their financial burden. But for residents, it also lowers their rents. If you are renting an ADU, uh, that is a lot cheaper than having to go out into our single family districts and rent a whole house and as a renter be responsible for you know, all the expenses of that house. Even if you don't own it, you know, you're paying for the whole structure. An ADU lets you pay for a smaller structure. Um, one benefit is that it reduces the number of existing zoning nonconformities around town. We have a number of ADUs. A lot of them were built um, in the immediate post-World War II era when we experienced a big, a big uh, population boom here in town. Um, and a number of those ADUs are currently non-conforming with zoning. And so we've faced inquiries from citizens who have an ADU on their property. They're trying to refinance their house. Um, and then they have to you know, deal with their lenders saying, gosh, it doesn't look like your property could be rebuilt as is if there was a, uh, if there was a fire and you burned down. So there's, there's an issue there. Um, and then something that especially we've noticed in the past year is legalizing ADUs responds to community demand. We regularly receive inquiries, I would say on the order of one to you know, one per month or you know, two every three months, that kind of thing, with people asking about building a second dwelling unit. And some of them are interested in it because they want to, um, they want to accommodate a relative or a friend. Others are interested in it more because they want to have an apartment to rent out on their property or they wanna live in it themselves and rent out the house in front. Um, but there is absolutely community demand for this. And I'll say, that, that our take, our read on it is that it's, it's arising from individuals. We don't have any large developers knocking down our door and saying, hey, you know, we'd like to legalize ADUs so we can purchase 50 houses and build 50 ADUs on them. It's a very individualized phenomenon that we're seeing across a variety of neighborhoods and people requesting this. Um, in short, the ADU is the most incremental, lowest impact change possible for a single family dwelling. It's a, it's a small unit, it is a second unit, but you're not, you know, you're not going to cram eight people in there and make it a party house. You're not going to ultimately fundamentally um, change the balance or dynamic of a neighborhood by legalizing these. Again, we do have many of them in town and they blend right in. And sometimes, unless you're the next door neighbor, uh, you wouldn't even notice. The fourth barrier that we'll talk about is, um, again, the opportunity to perhaps uh, create uh, a new zoning district that would allow smaller apartment buildings, uh, something on the order of four to eight units. Um, but coupled with that would have to be the exercise of identifying areas to upzone to allow those buildings. 
um, it works counter to the concept of incremental development if you create this zoning district and then find existing multifamily areas to downzone uh, to, to a, uh, something lesser. Um, you know, our, our zoning ordinance is set up uh, where um, you, 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 know, you, you have your single family options. And then for multifamily, uh, it behooves you to try and go big or go home. Um, build the biggest building you possibly can. Uh, assemble as many lots as possible. Uh, ask for that zoning change to get more land zone multifamily so you can build a bigger and bigger building. We've made some changes for that in the in-town neighborhood. But for the most part, we've created this, um, this contrast of the single family home on one side and the large apartment context, uh, complex on the next side. So we're really missing a lot of that middle part, uh, you know, what, what comes in between the single family home and the larger apartment building. And I'm sure you've all heard of the concept of the missing middle housing. Uh, and these are those housing types that are in that middle part between single family and large uh, apartment. And that's what we're going for in this case. I'll point out one example where this um, district could be useful also. Um, this is the corner of State and Charles. The picture on the left shows um, an existing uh, two unit house. Uh, and then the picture on the right shows the same house after a fire. Um, uh, not long after that fire, I got a call from somebody that was interested in purchasing that property. And they asked um, uh, what was the possibility of renovating that structure and putting four units in that, in that structure. And the, the immediate answer was that the zoning doesn't allow it. It's zoned uh, for, for no more than two units, SF2. Uh, and so the answer was you'd have to get a rezoning. And they said, well, what does that entail? And I said, well, you know, you go through the whole, you'd have to have a public hearing. It might be contentious in the neighborhood, might not, don't know. Um, and even if you did get the rezoning, perhaps there's some other code development uh, standards that would trip you up, like the number of parking spaces you'd have or the FAR or something like that. So anyway, the hurdle was just way too high. Um, today, the, the structure has been torn down, the lot sits vacant, uh, but the owner or the potential buyer had expressed to me that um, it was not going to make economic sense to purchase that existing structure um, fix it up uh, after the fire and only have two units in there. It made more, uh, it was only going to pencil out, if you will, if you had uh, four units, in his opinion. And so, and this is the area, uh, one of the areas that we think could make good sense for such a zoning district. And if we had a district like that, uh, that was confined to a handful of lots here, um, it uh, would promote this smaller apartment building and wouldn't actually encourage someone to try and gobble up more lots on the lot and create a much larger apartment building. So there are some good examples of these types of buildings in town. The, the picture on the left is actually in this, our sister city across the street on Green Street, but those are two small scale um, apartment buildings that have um, you know, probably less than 10 units in each one. And then one in Champaign that was recently built, uh, a six unit building at 302 East Clark Street, uh, actually in the multifamily university district, um, which kind of speaks to the spirit of this uh, smaller apartment building. This, for, in this case, it's just smaller because the lot was so small and that's all it could fit there. I will note that um, this apartment building was possible because we eliminated the parking requirements in the multifamily university zoning district. So an important key to this is also looking at our development um, uh, standards. 
And then, as I mentioned, it would only make sense if we created this district that we find areas that it would be appropriate to upzone to that district in, a, in the spirit of trying to introduce incremental development uh, into our existing neighborhoods. And it wouldn't be right everywhere, that's for sure, but we can use our new comprehensive, our newly updated comprehensive plan as a guide uh, for where are the city center neighborhoods perhaps, um, where that are, uh, many of those areas are actually zoned single family one uh, that could be potentially uh, upzoned to allow this, um, this new zoning district. That requires community input and a public hearing process, of course, uh, but we think that offers a really opportunity to help promote incremental development as well. So the, the fifth and final uh, standard we'll discuss tonight is parking standards, which Rob touched on briefly a couple slides ago. Um, and in some sense, these are a development standard, much like the, the lot width and lot, uh, lot size and FAR, um, but we called them out um, on their own because parking is a particularly space consumptive and expensive requirement, especially when it comes to the development of um, you know, anything more than a, a single family, more intense than a single family house. I have a, a couple graphics here that I've borrowed from a, a website called Graphing Parking um, that just give an introduction to um, how consumptive of, of space and money uh, parking requirements can be. On the left there, you see uh, a 900 square foot apartment. That's a pretty typical size for a two bedroom apartment. They typically range between 850 square feet and, and 1,000 square feet or so. That's what we see in, in new construction. It's a comfortable size for someone living in a two bedroom apartment. Um, and if a, if a developer uh, builds one and a half parking spaces, including the share of the aisles uh, that each parking space demands, uh, that's more than half of that apartment um, in terms of the square footage that it consumes. Um, so when a parking requirement is introduced uh, or, or when it is applied to the development of, uh, of a building, um, it can quickly stack up in terms of the amount of space that is consumed uh, on the lot just for storing automobiles. Um, and again, these requirements uh, apply generally um, in the city of Champaign. They apply uniformly whether you are right on a bus line or whether you are a mile and a half from a bus line, whether you're in a walkable part of town or a very unwalkable part of town in terms of destinations to walk to. Um, there's the, the parking requirement assumes um, that there is a, a need for uh, uh, a substantial amount of parking to be put on each lot. The amount of space that is consumed translates into a financial cost. Um, so the schematic on the right, real simple schematic, just shows that when you're building a building, you have to pay some money for the land. You typically pay more money to build the building itself. Um, and some of that cost is in, in, a, uh, in a system where a parking requirement exists um, is due simply to the presence of the parking. Um, on the one hand, uh, construction costs are driven, by, are driven higher by the presence of parking. Um, that's especially the case if somebody is going above ground or below ground with their parking. It gets, it gets to the level of, um, if you go below ground, to $25,000 of space, $30,000 of space just in construction costs alone. Um, there's also an opportunity cost that there are, the more space you take up with parking, especially if you're trying to avoid those really expensive forms of parking, you take up more space, and then that means there's less space for, for people to actually live on the lot. Uh, next slide, please. 
Um, a really nice illustration of this comes from our campus town. And I'll, I'll note by saying, you know, these are, these are larger than the apartments that we're talking about with that new zoning district that Rob just talked, uh, just introduced. But this is, um, this is my favorite picture to show what a zoning change can mean when it comes to development. Um, this is on Daniel Street, the 300 block of Daniel Street in Campus Town. And the building on the left was built about a year and a half before the building on the right. They have roughly the same number of units, roughly the same interior square footage. Um, they actually have the same number of floors for residents. Uh, the, the main difference between them is that the one on the left was built when a parking requirement was in effect for this zoning district. The one on the right was built when there is no parking requirement in effect. You see the one on the left, the entire building is up on stilts. There's just a very small bit that comes to the ground that has the staircase and the elevator, but the whole building is, uh, is up on stilts. And um, I, 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 we have a lot of wonderful architects here in town and they, they do a wonderful job, but I think any architect who has dealt with parking requirements in the past would say it does, you know, often produce a building that, that you know, they wish they could design a little better. It'd be a little more aesthetically pleasing if they didn't have to lift it up on stilts to meet the parking requirement. The one on the right was built after the parking requirement was repealed um, in this zoning district. There is a little bit of parking at this building. It's tucked behind the building just off the alley. Um, but the building, as you see, it comes down to the street. Um, I noticed, I, I noted that the buildings have the same number of floors, but because the building on the right is not lifted all the way up on stilts, it's actually shorter. So its visual impact is, is, uh, is a little less, but it's neighbor to the left being lifted up as it is, it's taller. And one thing I'll highlight too here is that, um, you know, if, if you're looking at that building on the right, you might be thinking, well, gosh, didn't the city enact some design requirements, um, things like materials and glazing, things like that, uh, that required buildings to, to look nicer um, in this district? And that did happen, but that actually happened about a year after we repealed the parking requirement. And so this building on the right was built in that window when there was no parking requirement, but before we started regulating the design of buildings. And nevertheless, um, the, the materials used are nicer, the design is more pedestrian friendly, it's more neighborhood oriented. Um, and having spoken with the developer and the architect, I asked you know, about that choice. And they said, um, they said the money that was saved in not being able to, in not having to provide parking and lift up an extra floor, um, they were able to pour into better design. Not every developer or architect will make that choice, but this is a great illustration of that choice being able to be made because they had choice in how much parking they could provide. I'll add a quick comment about parking in terms of, uh, in relation to accessory dwelling units. So uh, if we allowed accessory dwelling units today and did no changes to the parking, we would require that two parking spaces be constructed along with that accessory dwelling unit. In the single family zoning district, we require two spaces per dwelling unit. So a single family house has to have two spaces. So that would likely, uh, that could very well, um, you know, make it an ADU project infeasible, uh, either by cost or by not having the land area to actually add two more parking spaces on the lot. So that's a part of our thinking as well. Um, so those are the five barriers. So in, that's a lot. I know there's a lot of stuff there and tackling all those is not really practical all at once. Um, to try and narrow this down a bit, we, uh, we went through this exercise of trying to look at what's the, for each of these barriers, what are, what is perhaps the community sensitivity to tackling some of these barriers and what perhaps would be the staff resources needed or the demand on staff to, to do some of these things. 
And so we, you know, this is not scientific, but we, uh, we, we took a stab at this. Uh, for the first barrier of eliminating exclusionary zoning districts, um, we estimate that that will have a high level of community sensitivity and require a lot of staff resources because there's a lot of public education and discussion that has to go into um, uh, changing something like that. You can look at uh, what Minneapolis did and other communities that have uh, abolished their single family zoning district and it was it was no small undertaking. So it's while it may be one of the most important things to do in terms of um, uh, changing zoning and uh, uh, fostering incremental development, it has a high sensitivity rating and a, and a high level of resources. Um, reducing excessive lot standards, actually the staff resources on that is moderate or low because we did a lot of that work. Uh, but when we did a lot of that work, it was on a very sensitive case for changes that uh, we were talking about for the Clark Park neighborhood. Uh, so uh, we would be reintroducing some of those discussions on a citywide level. Uh, so we figure that has a, a fairly high sensitivity rating too. Accessory, allowing accessory dwelling units, we estimate would have a relatively low uh, sensitivity rating. Um, and, um, and have a little bit more than a moderate uh, staff resources because we would have to do a fair amount of research and decide what's the best approach for Champaign in doing that. We rated that low on sensitivity because, I mean, even if we allow them, um, we're not going to be flooded with ADU permits all at one time where this is going to seem like they're popping up everywhere in the community. Um, so we think they're relatively low sensitivity. Creating a new zoning district for smaller apartment buildings um, I think the sensitivity for that creating the district is very low, but uh, when we talk about looking at areas that should be upzoned, that's probably going to create some sensitivity uh, and the resources for that are about moderate. And then finally changing the parking requirements we think is low on, on both ends. That's something we have good experience doing. So when we um, taking that into consideration, staff recommends that we start by tackling these three barriers, uh, allowing accessory dwelling units, creating that new zoning district and reducing parking requirements. And then listed below there, and I won't read them, but are some of the steps that we would take to, uh, to actually uh, work through those. But most of them involve, um, you know, understanding some best practices, coming up with alternative regulations, and then bringing them back to city council for consideration and, and final action, of course. And these all involve getting more public input as well, which we haven't really uh, been able to do all that effectively during COVID. So um, with that, uh, Ben, you want to take the last slide? Sure. Um, so the staff recommendation uh, is that council would direct staff to continue to work on policies and actions to address the barriers to incremental development that we've identified in our report and to bring those back to city council for further consideration and, and specifically the recommendation is to direct staff to work on those, um, addressing those three barriers that we've recommended, uh, accessory dwelling units, creating a new zoning district and proposing areas to upzone into that new, uh, uh, that new zoning district and to reduce residential parking standards. And with that, we'd be happy to take questions. Thank you for your presentation. Council technical questions, Council Member Gladney. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your presentation. Um, so I have a few questions. I guess I'll start at the end. So when you talk about public input, um, what are we talking about regarding that? Because, um, you know, pre-COVID, obviously, we'd be doing um, like open houses and 
we, we have staff, you know, planning staff on hand and invite the public to come and look at, you know, charts and designs and um, information. So, but what are, what are you envisioning for public input on this going forward? Yeah, two, two things. Uh, thanks for asking. Number one, we would have to really step up our, our digital media presence for getting input. So electronic surveys, uh, putting short videos out there, um, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, ways to get comments that way. Uh, but secondly, uh, we would expect to use our neighborhood associations uh, more through our neighborhood services departments, uh, through some of the meetings that they run, neighborhood leaders meetings, um, some of those forums that we've already presented uh, at a bit. You know, those are, those are the, the two best alternatives we have to having the big, you know, in-person meeting at the library where people can come and, and, and talk face-to-face. -face. And hopefully we are able to get back to some face-to-face. -face. I mean, we're not gonna do this in the next, in the next 30 days, um, but those are the two things that we'd be focusing on for getting input. Thank you. So another question. Um, so I like, the, I like the affordable angle on this, the affordable housing angle on this and, and maybe uh, providing some options that, uh, you know, maybe wouldn't be allowed now that, that could, you know, provide different places for people to live that they could afford better. Now, that being said, one of the things that we've, um, we've encountered whenever we talk, for example, about new construction, whether it be, you know, the outskirts of town or particularly maybe, you know, infill development, is it seems that new construction always seems to cost a lot. And that is then um, that is then handed down to residents of like, let's say rental units, uh, in the cost of their, of their rents. Um, I know a while back we would, I think we, some of us talked about like downtown development and how downtown development always seems to be really expensive. And we're like, well, can't we have a downtown development that's more affordable? And what we were told was, well, yeah, but that would be great, but new, new construction is expensive. So would it, what, what are you, is there anything in here that would make, you know, if, if for example, you did a, you know, a, a four unit new construction dwelling or what have you, and I'm not talking about ADUs here, but I'm talking about, you know, like the, the so, you know, the smaller uh, multifamily units. Is there anything about any of this that would make those uh, more affordable? So um, I thank you for the question. I have uh, a few thoughts on this. The first is that you're, you're absolutely right. New construction, you know, does uh, often carry a higher price point simply by, by uh, fact that it's new. Um, the corollary to that is that um, if we want to have more uh, older affordable buildings 20, 30, 40 years from now, and we want those buildings to be only 20, 30, 40 years old, because they were constructed and they were constructed to modern standards, um, we need to be able to build those buildings now. Um, so the, the new housing today does have an affordability, it becomes the affordable housing of tomorrow, it becomes more affordable because the new housing will always be most expensive. However, there are other uh, aspects of this that I think are more immediately responsive when we look at the timeline. Uh, one is that uh, when we consider construction techniques, um, and just the, the cost that go into building a building. You mentioned a four unit building. Uh, a four unit building is actually kind of in a, in a sweet spot for affordability when it comes to construction um, for a couple of reasons. 
you get four households splitting the cost of a, of a piece of land, of a lot, rather than one household. So a lot, a lot costs what it costs, but you can, you can split the cost among multiple households. And so splitting a, a, a lot price across four households is more affordable than splitting it just one household per lot. Um, a four unit building is also a building that is um, in almost all cases going to be what's called uh, stick built. So it's gonna be built out of wood. It's not going to be built out of, out of steel simply because of the size of it. Uh, it's likely a building that does not have an elevator. Um, when we have zoning districts that allow and basically encourage people to build as big as possible, they're often bringing elevators and parking decks and concrete and steel into the mix, which drives the, uh, the expense up. Um, it's also something that can be built relatively simply. Um, I'm sure there are people on this call who have been on a Habitat for Humanity build before. I have myself. Um, I am far from the handiest person with a set of tools, um, but I can, I can hang drywall, I can hammer in nails, I can do things like that, and most people are able to as well. Um, and uh, that's a skill set that an individual is able to pitch in building a, uh, a, a four-unit building in a way uh, that saves labor costs that you really can't translate to, um, uh, to something where you are building with steel, building concrete, building elevators. That's where you're bringing in engineers, bringing in expensive architects, all those soft costs that drive prices up. The last thing I'll say about affordability relates to improving or increasing popularity in our, our neighborhoods that currently exist. Um, if our neighborhoods, if our existing neighborhoods increase in popularity, over the next couple decades. Um, there are really two choices we have. We can allow uh, um, those, develop, those neighborhoods to develop incrementally, to add housing units incrementally so that new types of households can be accommodated um, so that people are, are brought into the neighborhood and so the popularity can translate into a slightly higher population. Um, we could also say that no new housing is allowed. The number of dwelling units can't increase. And that wouldn't mean that the neighborhood would stop getting more popular. It would just mean that people with more money would be able to outbid people with less money. And because they would only be bidding over single family houses, you know, there wouldn't be that accessory dwelling unit available to them that's available at a cheaper price point, that two flat or three flat um, where they're buying just, you know, a third of the building. Um, and so there's an affordability component there in that even, um, a, a, even if newer projects are themselves more expensive right after they're constructed, they do have an impact on neighborhood-wide affordability by reducing the number of competitors for that existing housing stock. Okay. Thank you. My last question. Um, where does this, where would these potential, if we like took up these, these, these potential changes, where would they be, they be applicable to? Like what parts of town? Because I, correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't like newer neighborhoods, like subdivisions, don't they have like covenants that would um, supersede some of our own ordinances. Uh, does, am I right there? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good point, especially for accessory dwelling units. There may be uh, covenants for certain subdivisions that wouldn't allow them, even if the zoning ordinance does allow them. Um, part of our research for that task would be identifying um, where they're allowed and where they're not by covenant, and we can create a map. Same way we did when we researched uh, um, chicken coops, you know, what, what subdivisions don't allow them. 
Uh, and it's up to them if they wanted to change their rules to allow them once the city did. But um, that is a good point. There are, you know, if we change our parking requirements, um, that's probably not going to be the case in other neighborhoods. You know, unless their covenants get so detailed as to exactly how many parking spaces you have to have per unit, probably not the case. But in terms of ADUs, yeah, uh, there, I suspect there would be a fair number of subdivisions that won't allow them anyway. Okay, thank you. Other technical questions? Councilmember Bricks. I just have a couple. So one is with the typical ADU, what sizes are you thinking a, a typical detached ADU would be? Um, um, we haven't really identified a square footage, but I mean, you know, the, the concept that it is accessory to a main dwelling unit means that it's smaller. Our, our thinking is that it is, you know, um, in the neighborhood of no more than 500, 600 square feet, something along those lines. It's, uh, you know, appropriate for one or two people to live, uh, you know, not a, not a two bedroom home or anything like that, but um, you know, some of our smallest single family homes in the city are, are 700, 800 square feet, um, Garden Hills, some, some of those kinds of neighborhoods. So, you know, we're talking about something smaller than that. Okay. And then um, you indicated that you see this potentially happening more in more established neighborhoods or older neighborhoods within the community. So, um, are you concerned at all about the impacts of infrastructure in the older neighborhoods? Is it in place enough where it can support additional housing or units or whatever that may be? On the scale we're talking about, um, absolutely. Uh, there is, uh, this actually, I'm, I'm glad you raised the question. It, op it offers an opportunity to, uh, to right size uh, the infrastructure with the surrounding housing to a certain extent, where we're talking about the capacity of the roads, the capacity of the sewers, um, all these different things. Um, you know, now we'd have uh, a more robust tax base, more residents using existing infrastructure in a way that would not overburden it. I will say we have experienced, um, you know, in Campus Town at a couple key nodes where we have seen very intense development. Um, that development has overburdened. Uh, sewer pipes in particular, and resulted in some expensive upgrades to the sewer system. Um, but taking a neighborhood that's largely single family and sprinkling a few ADUs, a couple duplexes, a few triplexes, maybe a six unit apartment building here or there, um, we don't anticipate would have um, any, any noticeable impact on our existing infrastructure and would not overburden it. You know, another, another point I'd like to make in relation to that question, um, in terms of AD, adding an ADU to a, a lot that has a single family house, say, um, you know, that, that single family home is already permitted to have more people living in there than is probably living in there. We allow four unrelated adults or four families. Uh, if you take your typical house that has, say, four, four, a family of four living in there, they can, they're actually permitted to have more people living in that house. Uh, grandma can move in, another family can move in, that kind of thing. So adding an X and, and we've accommodated for that in our, in our thinking of um, infrastructure and, and services. So adding an accessory dwelling unit really provides um, the ability to um, uh, take uh, extra uh, people living on the property that are already allowed to do that, just not in that one structure, but in a separate structure. Okay, and then my last question 
has to do with missing middle housing. And so in all the example, it appears that everything is going up, even if it's on a smaller scale. Would, would you know, and when we're looking at potentially an aging population and lack of housing and things um, for that population, would it be possible to do like courtyard, courtyard cottages and those types of things? So missing middle doesn't necessarily mean going up, right? That's an, that's an excellent point. And I think you're right. And we have actually had inquiries in the last year about doing a bungalow court style of development or um, a small home development on small lots. And one of the biggest tripping hazards for that is our, our minimum lot size requirements and our lot width requirements, et cetera. Okay, thank you. Council member back. Um, so uh, in talking about the, um, the parking requirements, you know, I'm, I'm all for eliminating, you know, cars on the road and creation of other opportunities for people's transportation needs. I'm, I'm wondering how it translates to our larger community. So when we looked at the university district, that's a very, um, you know, it's, it's a small district where we know that students are traveling to a particular destination, the university, clearly. And, you know, it's, it's centered, life is centered around the university. Um, but if we're looking at other neighborhoods, I'm wondering how those parking needs translate um, with what our transportation what, what, what's available for transportation and how people can get places. Um, and would we want to take a harder look at where those transportate, where those, um, where those parking needs are really centered around in, in denser areas? I mean, is that the idea? Um, or is it that we would translate this across the community? Um, I'm, 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 I just want to get a little clarification there. Um, and then the other piece that, um, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in the, in continuing the conversation about the accessory dwelling units. Um, I, I'm hopeful that we can look at them even maybe even a little bit broader context than what we are. And hopefully, you know, there are other, like in the state of California, I think that the size goes over a thousand square feet. Um, so it allows for an accessory dwelling unit that would be larger than what's being proposed now um, or what you're sort of talking about, I guess, in terms of size that you're you're thinking a proposal would be. Um, but would we want to look at that across the city and there are lots that are very large that could have a larger accessory dwelling unit on it. Um, and then there are lots that are smaller that clearly you wouldn't be able to even put a, a, an accessory dwelling unit on that size. So I guess I'm, I'm willing to look at a larger size accessory dwelling unit dependent on the lot size is what I'm saying there. Um, and then finally, we didn't really talk about this tonight, but you mentioned it briefly um, as one of the things that we're gonna be talking about in the future, and that's the disposition of our vacant lots. And as we're talking about 
um, food insecurities also in another conversation, um, a, a, a big part of that conversation was the use of empty lots for community gardens and the possibility of having some sort of community garden in empty lots. And I, as we move into that study session, I would like for us to also think about using empty lots in some sort of pilot project, whether that's just a small pilot project for um, one lot even to, for, for some sort of community garden creation. I think that that would be um, something that would be well received by the community, but, and also was something that people had talked about in, a, in another, another setting. So um, just putting the two pieces together, I think moving that would help to move it forward. So those are my comments. And if you can answer the question that I had about the parking, then that would be helpful. Sure. So, um, you know, you're, you're absolutely right that there is a, a different sort of resident and transportation dynamic uh, east of the railroad tracks, you know, in campus town versus the rest of the community. Um, that said, uh, you know, a, a couple thoughts. One, uh, when it comes to parking, uh, the city has actually, over the past several decades, made an incredible investment all over the community in our residential neighborhoods in on-street parking. I don't believe we have a, a uh, precise count of how many off-street parking spaces we have available, because um, most of them are in neighborhoods where uh, the spaces themselves aren't even delineated. Um, but I know it's on the order of tens of thousands of off-street parking spaces that we have sprinkled across our residential neighborhoods the vast majority of which currently go unused most of the time. So that's thing one is to highlight that there is already an existing um, and expansive parking inventory out there. Um, when it comes to um, also developer interest and, um, and resident interest in uh, where they wanna locate and what their transportation needs are, um, it's actually, we, we see that, that uh, both developers and residents are pretty good at figuring out if they need street, if they need parking or if they don't and selecting locations that meet their needs or not. So um, in the residential context, for instance, before we got rid of parking requirements, um, we noticed that uh, developers in the core of the community were building only as much parking as was required. Whereas developers on the edge of the community in places that didn't have good transit and weren't very walkable often built more parking than was required. Um, that was a reflection of the fact that the developers in the core uh, knew that their residents didn't even want all the parking that we were requiring them to build. Whereas folks on the, on the, on the fringe or in those less walkable, less transit oriented locations offered um, more parking as a, as a selling point, as an amenity. Um, and we don't expect that that dynamic would change um, with anything we're talking about here. Uh, there may be folks who are interested in doing something small scale, but still providing a lot of parking. Um, those folks are not going to be well suited uh, to, to certain sites in town that are, site, that are space constrained. They might want to locate elsewhere and they're going to provide parking um, on their own. Uh, there is, we do have the ability, of course, to set up our regulations so that maybe there's a lower parking requirement if you're closer to transit or in a certain location or things like that. We can certainly explore that. Uh, I will say, you know, one of the goals here is to make um, development standards and expectations very clear and legible for the community so that developers and potential residents of incremental development, but also neighbors have a sense of what can be built. 
Um, and so if we start to introduce complex formulas about, well, your parking requirement is this, if you're next to a bus route, but it's, it's something different if you're farther and here are these multipliers, it's absolutely something we can do. It does make it harder, I think, for the average citizen, um, whether they're planning to build an ADU or whether they're concerned what their neighbor's gonna do, it makes it harder for them to understand what might be, you know, what they can expect in the future. Other technical questions? Seeing none, is there anyone in the audience who wishes to address this issue? Please raise your hand, state your name and city of residence and limit your comments to five minutes or less. Madam Mayor, I'll turn on the microphone for Brian Dunn. Hello, my name is Brian Dunn from Champaign. Um, just, you know, I'm really liking a lot of what I'm hearing here. I really appreciate um, the presentation from Ben. You know, this is why I try not to miss a city council meeting is because I learn a lot in a meeting like this. Um, so thank you for that. Um, some ideas and just thoughts that I've had, you know, since I've moved back to Champaigns in 2015, I've pretty much only lived in houses that are converted into two or three apartments. Uh, the current apartment that I'm living in now, it was, it is a two bedroom on the first floor of a house and then the second floor is a single bedroom apartment. And uh, I know that before my fiance and I moved in here, it was a single mother living here. Um, so I just think spaces like that are, you know, they're definitely affordable and they're also really important. Um, and when it comes to parking, I remember that a U of I student named Nick Keeling used to put on an event called Parking Day. And it kind of just showed all the things that we could be doing with the space that we reserve for parking. Um, and it's really gross, just the amount of space parking takes up in our community and the amount of potential that is there. So I definitely think that reducing, uh, you know, restrictions on how much parking there can be or should be is uh, a very good thing. Um, I heard mentioning of covenants and I just know, you know, everything I've read about redlining, it was pretty much all enabled by the use of covenants. There were a lot of white only covenants and, you know, just because maybe they can't put that language in their, you know, whatever kind of uh, SOP they have or whatever explicitly, I'm sure that covenants still do what they can to keep, uh, you know, minority residents out of their neighborhoods. And so, like, why do we still have covenants? Is there anything we can do about abolishing covenants? I feel like that'd be pretty cool. And then just, you know, when it comes to developing the community, you know, uh, Evanston has a housing reparation program and, you know, we've had covenants, we've had redlining, we've been proactively racist in our development. So I think that we should try and be proactively anti-racist in our new developments. And I think that's some kind of, you know, housing uh, assistance, subsidies, anything like that, so that it's not just white developers, uh, white people looking for housing, uh, uh, cheap housing, cheap rent, uh, benefiting from this would be a really good thing. So some kind of, you know, we don't have to call it reparation, I don't even think what Evanston did was actual reparations, uh, but some kind of subsidized housing to deal with the white supremacy that has a legacy in our community, I think would be a, a great thing. Thank you. Thank you. Turn on the microphone for Wendy Bartlow. Uh, hi, and can you hear me? 
All right, thanks. Uh, my name is Wendy Bartlow. I'm a Champaign resident, and I'm also the Assistant Director of the Center on Health, Aging, and Disability at the University of Illinois. Um, in this role, I manage the day-to-day -day logistics for the program Age-Friendly Champaign-Urbana. This program was created to make cities more livable for residents of all ages, but with a focus on older adults. And it was created by the AARP and World Health Organization in response to global, global trends in aging. We know that our communities, our entire world is getting older. And in another 10 years, close to one in every four Illinois residents will be over the age of 60. So I'm here tonight to endorse the requested direction to pursue changes to the zoning ordinances to allow accessory dwelling units. I sent you all an email earlier, so I won't uh, belabor the point of all the research on this topic that um, this type of housing structure really has a lot of economic, social, and environmental benefits for individuals, families, and communities. Um, I'm mostly concerned with um, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has had a very acute uh, effect. Uh, it's been an acute crisis for older adults and social isolation and has had a lot of negative effects on both emotional, social, and physical well-being of older adults. Um, and I see accessory dwelling units as as a way to mitigate some of this social isolation. Uh, the last community member just spoke a little bit about segregation in housing. I think it's important to think about uh, the way that this extends um, also to generational. Uh, we want our neighborhoods to be integrated with people of all ages. Um, that's good for a neighborhood. It's good for older people, but it's also good for younger people as well. Um, both, both groups benefit from interactions with one another. Um, older people have the opportunity to share wisdom, to provide mentorship to younger people, to, um, and younger people have the opportunity to learn, but also to engage with older people um, to teach them things as well, to help them learn new technologies. Um, so, Really what I'm saying here is that for a city to retain and attract retirees, there need to be a variety of accessible housing models. And I see ADUs as an important piece of that equation. Cities need residents of all ages to thrive and therefore they need to be places where residents of all ages can thrive. And that includes a range of access to housing models like ADUs. Um, you know, Ben was talking a little bit earlier about, um, you know, the houses that we have now, the single family homes, you could have more people living in them. You could have grandma come and live with you. You could have your grandfather come and live with you. You could have an older aunt come and live with you. But maybe that person still wants to retain some of their independence and have some privacy as well. And I see accessory dwelling units as a, as a great opportunity for that. So uh, thank you for your time and thank you for considering this. Thank you. Turn the microphone on for Phil Pasella. Hey guys, um, I'm sure I've talked to all of you at some point about uh, incremental development. You know, most of my um, my business involves or has involved in the past. You know, finding neighborhoods and properties that are abandoned or unwanted, being lost for the taxes. Um, and I've heard it said, I've never, you know, Phil has never seen a property he didn't think was worth saving or a building he didn't think was worth saving. But I, um, 
you know, I'm really excited you've taken this, Don. I think this, uh, realistically, this change to the status quo is going to be attacked from all sides. Um, you know, bringing workplaces back into neighborhoods is going to bring fears of the unknown. Revitalizing neighborhoods will, you know, by definition, make obsolete, inexpensive, or abandoned buildings marginally more functional and desirable. It'll be called gentrification, but if it happens slowly, it can reverse generations of property abandonment and decay and help build a, a healthy place for all kinds of people. Um, you know that bringing multifamily housing into single family neighborhoods brings fear of economic and racial integration. Again, fear of the unknown. So despite all of this, and, and you're going to hear if you pursue this honestly, a lot of very panicked people at future meetings, but you have to remember that the silent majority of your citizens and the children of the future would benefit from this. Um, the vast majority of people who live in town do not pay attention to these meetings and you're not going to hear from them. You also don't hear from the unborn future generations who will appreciate their maybe first apartment on the park 50 or even 100 years from today. The buildings that are being built today will be lived in 100, 200, 300 years from um, and we need to build with those future generations in mind and not the, the fears that our parents and grandparents lived with. Um, I also want you to try to remember that some of the very most consistently desirable neighborhoods in this town, so for generations, the neighborhoods that people have wanted to live in and invest money in, have been the ones which have been the least regulated. So, you know, regulations like restrictive covenants lead to inflexibility and functional obsolescence and decay. These new subdivisions will be popular for 10, 20, 50 years, but at some point when those buildings and those regulations don't fit the needs of those neighborhoods, it becomes very, very difficult to change those covenants. And um, you don't just need to look north a couple of hours to some of the older suburbs around Chicago and you begin to see you know, real suburban decay. Um, so I think I, I just want to encourage you guys to, to trust all of our citizens to make wise decisions about what they want their neighborhoods to look like. Um, and some of that's by allowing people to use private property a little bit more freely than we've been accustomed to. And we need to open our minds and, and do look back a little bit at what has worked historically. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for having this meeting and being open-minded. You've got a lot of controversy ahead of you, but if you can push forward through this, the city will be a viable, vibrant home for the children of future generations. Thank you. Thank you. Any other comments from the public? Madam Mayor, I see no other hands raised. Council comments. Councilmember Panfetti. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, well, first, uh, thank you, Rob, and thank you, Ben, um, for the presentation and uh, to others who probably helped inform the presentation. I know there was a lot of work that went into this. Um, I certainly am in support of um, the, the three options that you want to follow up with. Um, and I know that in my conversations with several um, residents here in District 5. There's a lot of support for incremental development as well. I think that um, the notion of being able to look at neighborhoods and communities and um, being able to kind of grow and change as a community 
is very much in the forefront of a lot of minds. And we have timed this conversation very well because I think as um, incremental as this development is, I think there are a lot of changes that are happening in people's um, perspectives in their hearts and in their minds. So um, while there may be some tense conversations that we will have to face, I think that the outcomes of that will be something very promising. Um, I am um, strongly in favor of the accessory uh, dwelling units. Um, in particular, um, I love the idea that uh, the speaker, um, Wendy Bartlow, uh, mentioned about the intergenerational um, community aspects, the neighborhood aspects, because I think that is something that um, would be very beneficial. And as we think about what the incremental and the, the strong town videos if, that you showed at the beginning, that was something that was very prominent in the design and development and early history of, of neighborhoods and in communities. And if I think back to um, where I first grew up, that was very prominent in the neighborhoods of the north side of Chicago, the, the, the various generations. Um, parking, interestingly enough, was one of the uh, largest conversations I've had because many um, think of it as a way to start with greener communities. And that is something that even small eliminations of parking spaces and being able to do more um, with those spaces and, and being able to get more people um, walking or biking and, and having places for them um, in the neighborhoods with more commercial properties and, and interesting places within the neighborhoods um, that people could walk to and, and be creative and innovative of what neighborhoods would start to look like. We were something that was very promising. And um, the upzoning um, was something that um, I'm certainly in favor of and, and, and would be in support of. Um, I, I do like what Council Member Brooks talked about in not just the, um, the, the bungalow style uh, as another alternative as well. I know that will go into a lot more zoning conversations, but it is something that um, would offer an alternative, alternative to um, housing options as well. So thank you again for the presentation. Council Member Brooks. Thank you uh, for your presentation. And I, a few years ago, I was down in Nashville for a training and I was gonna be there for a few days. I needed a quiet place. Um, the hotels around there were booked up and were really expensive. And so I was able to rent an, an ADU for a few days and it was a converted space above somebody's garage in their backyard. And it was awesome. It was quiet. I could cook something if I wanted to. Um, it just was a really great experience. And it started to open my mind about um, what AD, ADUs could be or what they could do in Champaign. And um, I think COVID has been a really, really good example of how great this could be because not only um, you know, it gives flexibility, like maybe it's an ADU for a period of time because I bought my first home and there's an ADU in the back and I can rent it out and it helps me pay my mortgage. Or maybe it's something where, um, like during COVID, 
where now I have to work from home. So I need a quiet space and I want my work life sort of separated from my home life. And that gives me another option. And then I love it too. And I've already threatened my parents that one day I'm going to throw them in my backyard in an ADU. And I don't know how excited they are about that, but um, but I love having that option where they can still have their independence, um, but I can be right there if they should need anything. And so I think the really great thing about incremental development is that it can adjust and sort of change over time to meet life needs. And so I, I love where you're going with the ADUs. I think that's great. Um, I also like the potentially uh, doing a different zoning category for the missing middle stuff. I feel like every time there is an apartment built in an apartment building built in a neighborhood, especially an older neighborhood, we have the neighborhoods come out in a fury. And so I guess if it's one thing where they know it's smaller scale and it's not going to be a huge amount of people in a small area, I mean, I think that that is definitely missing. And I think having that alternative for developers is gonna be really important moving forward. For um, future things, and I sort of brought this up the last time, um, is just making sure too that as um, incremental development is being done, realizing that a lot of these people that are gonna be small scale developers are not developers. So putting processes and supports in place and helping them, potentially building relationships with um, in financial institutions, lenders and things, because some of them, if there's not like, a, if there's not a history of those types of things currently being built, they may be hesitant to lend on that. And so figuring out how to work with them um, towards the overall growth of the city and um, maybe for future development, I think that's gonna be a really important link too. But I'm really excited where you're going with this and I'm just excited to see it start to get off the ground and um, look forward to all that's to come. Thanks so much. Anyone else? Councilmember Foreman. Um, I think this is super, I think the incremental development is a super good idea but um, I, I want staff going forward to think about something. You have a community, you know, as far as citywide taking this, I've gotten more emails about some apartment complex being built over somewhere they don't want it, okay? So how are you going to apply something like this to a community who is scared of apartment buildings and scared of developments that they don't understand? I think that's something you need to take into consideration if you're gonna think about it citywide. Um, but I think for the North End and for District 1 and downtown, it could be super important to revitalize these areas and to get more investment there. At the same time, you have to be careful with that investment there because you have people who will come in, they will develop, they will, you know, make a lot of rental properties and they may raise the rent. And if we can't control that or you can't help that to keep that affordable, um, then that doesn't, that doesn't matter. And I know this because I know people who are buying properties for, you know, $40,000 in District 1 and it's worth one hundred and fifty. dollars you know, so the rent is going to be what $1,400 a month, but that person's mortgage is $400. That's what's going to happen if you don't be careful and we don't promote, you know, people to buy these properties and people to, you know, understand that incremental development gives them the ability to, you know, have a property in Garden Hills and add on to a guest house. That's something that most people probably didn't realize that would be, you know, beneficial to them, but they can do that now. Um, something I really, I was hoping to see that I didn't see was something about like tiny houses. I really, really would like to see 
you guys talk about that because I, I believe that, you know, a lot of people disagree with me. I understand that. I'm just a citizen, okay? I'm just telling y'all my thoughts, okay? Y'all won't get to hear my thoughts no more. So take take this and write it down and keep it, okay? Um, the tiny houses can really be affordable and it could be a stepping stone to someone to purchase a home. It could really change the way people see investment. And by that, I also mean young people because there are people, for example, foster people, foster children who age out of the system. They may not immediately be able to go and buy a house, but they may be able to get a tiny house just like a trailer and sell it. So those are things you guys should think about, I think, as you move forward. But I think it's really important to be careful with what, you go, what you're going to do with, you know, incremental development, how you're going to spread it across the city, because I don't find this community very welcoming when it comes to developments they don't understand. And I don't think multifamily housing is going to ever be some type of accepted, you know, conversation in the community. Even in District 1, I think there are people who are concerned about apartment buildings, right? Because high density housing is concerning. So I think you guys should keep track of that. Um, what you guys do with the vacant properties, is uh, the city's properties going forward in the future. I would like you to keep in mind that there are gonna be people who want to do businesses or there are gonna be community centers, things that the city really needs to look at potentially doing with these um, properties that could actually benefit and help with gun violence, uh, neighborhood plight, so those are some things I think you guys should keep, you know, keep in mind as you as you go forward. And I hope that city council, as you look at this in the future, you won't try to do a, you know, label it as a citywide thing because it's not realistic. And as much as you think that you can stop gentrification from happening, the cheaper that properties are and the easier that they are for them to buy up, people who look like me are not going to be the people buying them. And mostly because they're they don't have access. So if you're going to do this, financial access is going to have to also be a part of that. Not that that's something the city can control, but I think the city staff does a good job of recognizing that, right? And, you know, this is the end of my comment, but never forget Ben Leroy had the best letter to the editor of all time. Anyone else? Councilmember Bruno. I think these are um, uh, really forward thinking ideas and I fully support them. Uh, specifically addressing the, you know, the three focus areas that you suggest starting with, I, I can support all of those concepts. Um, we probably did our community a great deal of harm over the last 40 years with uh, mandating uh, parking spaces uh, with residential housing. We didn't let the market place the true value on those spaces or the true cost on those spaces because we made uh, developers and landowners create a parking space, whether the market wanted one or not. So I've made the analogy before, it's like uh, a package meal, I guess, at a fast food place, you get burgers and French fries. We thought we knew better and we said, you can't sell a burger unless you also sell everybody a side order of French fries. And so we got a lot more French fries than we wanted or needed in campus town with parking spaces. And then we scratch our heads and wonder why do we have such a traffic jam in campus town and why aren't people relying on uh, mass transit more? So reducing parking requirements all over the community is a good thing and I fully support that. Um, accessory dwelling units, I think is gonna be a little bit like our experience with chicken coops. Where Oh, the people were wringing their hands and gnashing their teeth that these were going to be the 
the be all and it was gonna end life as we knew it. Somebody down the block has a chicken coop in the backyard. And sure enough, in reality, they weren't that problematic and neighbors often don't even know it's taking place. Likewise, grandma's living out, out back over the garage or in a little attachment to the house. And probably none of the neighbors will know that. Not only not know, but not, not actually be bothered by it. Uh, so I have great faith in the people of the city of Champaign being open-minded, supporting these ideas. Uh, they may, um, they may have some resistance, but I don't expect much resistance uh, because I've got a great deal of faith in people seeing the wisdom in all of this. I support these ideas. Thank you. Anyone else wish to comment? Councilmember Stock. <clears throat> Last one. Um, yeah, I just want to thank staff. Again, I think this is really well put together, really well thought out in terms of the steps we need to move to. Um, I think there's a lot of really great ideas here. I think as Councilmember Bruno said, it's it's really forward thinking of where we need to be, where we want to be in the future. So I really appreciate the work you put in those so far and the work you will put in because I think I think it really is a go in terms of the steps and how you've laid them out. I, I appreciate the fact that you've really thought through those very well and moving forward. Councilmember Gladney. Thanks. Yeah, uh, just echoing what's been said so far. Uh, I'm fine with the three, I guess I'll call them priority um, removals of, of the barriers. Um, it sounds, you know, the, the the reduction of parking, I mean, that's something we've already been doing in various parts of town, and that's something I'm fine with doing. And it also sounds like it has to be kind of done in tandem with accessory dwelling units. Um, at least it will make it less complicated. You know, I mean, whenever I'm around town, um, particularly in commercial areas, I'm always just kind of shaking my head at how much parking spaces there are and how very rarely is it ever full. Um, and it's, it's, you know, I, I, I won't say where I was at the other day, it was a fast food joint, I was in the drive-through and I just looked and like, there's like this expanse of parking behind it. And I'm like, who, who no, one was no one was parked there. I'm like, I don't know what's, what's going on there, but you know, I'm sure our, our code probably required it uh, at some point. So um, I'm happy to see uh, reductions in, in parking um, I, I'm open to the sort of mixed development, uh, potential, uh, and, and we have, I mean, we, I mean, you know, Rob and Ben already, already talked about it. I mean, we have this already in town before, you know, the kind of predates some of the more strict zoning guidelines. Um, you know, I, I always, I always like, um, the section of Healy, I think it's east of Prospect, that has like apartment dwellings that are, I don't know, they're probably about the same age as the, the houses that are there, but like they're the nice uh, brick apartment buildings. They fit in really well with the neighborhoods. There's also kind of a, a neat apartment building on the corner. I think it's Prospect and Green uh, that's really nice. And I don't know, these are places that predate myself. So I'm used to seeing them around town, but um, I am also bracing for the, um, the backlash that we're probably going to get to some of this. Um, you know, we've already experienced it to an extent. And, you know, I get it, right? Uh, on the one hand, I, 
sometimes people object to things and you can assign whatever motives you want to them. Uh, but I think honestly, sometimes people just uh, don't like change uh, for whatever reason. Some, it, you know, there could be a, a more sinister reason to it or it could just be fairly innocuous that you know, maybe they're just used to their neighborhood being a certain way, uh, certain types of you know, dwelling units there. And then you start looking at changing that you know, sometimes people just push back on that. And I understand that. I also think though, you know, we, as, as in our roles here, we have to look at what we feel like is gonna be better for our community, not necessarily right in the moment, but down the road. And yeah, and I also, again, I wanna go back to what I was asking Ben and Rob about earlier, the affordability aspect. This is kind of being sold with this affordability tag and I, you know, I think we need to sort of look at that seriously uh, and, you know, who's going to be able to afford to do some of these, these things. Because um, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I mean, not everybody I think is going to be able to afford to do an ADU, even if they want one. But uh, I mean, it sounds nice. Uh, hey, you build this, this little dwelling in your backyard and you can rent it out as an Airbnb or, or as just a regular rental property, that's great. But you have to also, if you don't have one already, you have to be able to afford to put one there. And that's not gonna be everybody. So maybe I, I want this to be a rising tide. Um, so, but I am glad we're having this conversation and are gonna continue to have the conversation. I also want this to be very much open to the public as far as getting public input um, which I know our staff will do our, their best to, to make that happen. But um, yeah, I look forward to um, discussing this further. Further, Councilmember Kyles. Definitely um, want to continue to discuss it further. I am going to be in support of tonight's recommendations. Um, um, like, I'm not going to say anything that's not been said before. One of the things that I was thinking about was how do we have, um, you know, conversations um, at the community level, um, and and it's not it's not necessarily entirely a staff thing. I think it's a you know being able to have uh, community uh, forums on on some of the stuff that we're talking about because you know I think that you're right that some that the comments that some of it could be met, met with backlash when you talk about gentrification and things like that. But as it, in many cases, um, it's not surprising that we would have those conversations. Uh, when you think about um, African American, particularly African American communities, um, uh, I think that we're going, we're, we've never been, we've never liked to just be told what to do. And I think that sometimes that's the sentiment is that this is going to happen. And so that's where a lot of the, the backlash come, comes from historically. No one likes to just be told what to do in that sense that you're going to do this, you're going to do that. Uh, but having conversations that are meaningful and, and, and particularly when you start talking about District 1 and uh, you know areas in uh, District 3, um, it's, it's important to have conversations at the community level and figuring out how creative ways and how we have those conversations, 
making sure that everyone's at the table or as much as possible people can be at the table. One of the things that the second thing that I'm really looking at, so I've already said that I would support the recommendations, but how do we make the housing um, that we have already available uh, even um, better? A lot of, you know, we I think I've heard this, that affordable housing is somewhat subjective, right? You know, like uh, we had the uh, former um, HUD director say that, you know, you know, talk about the, the challenges of, of affordable housing. Somebody might say affordable housing is, you know, $1,000. Somebody else might say affordable housing is $500. And so, you know, that definition and that, that perspective of affordable and what that actually means is, is, um, is, is where, you know, I think that there's some room for conversation. Um, lastly, you know, one of the things, the, the major thing that I'm struggling with is making sure that, and I know that we talk about property rights and we try to encourage uh, great behavior and good behavior. One, the, the major thing that I'm struggling with is what happens when we go through the process of of development in the community. So I live in, in a general area where, you know, I live in a general area where we had, you know, it used to be a lot of um, um, issues in the community, whether it was violence and such. Um, without mentioning any particular housing development, one of the things that I noticed is that after 15, year, 15 years or so, like those issues, like the same issues that we were fighting 15 years ago or 20 years ago or why that area um, uh, was redeveloped in the first place, they resurface. And so that's, I'm, I'm looking at the future, but I'm looking at some of the issues that we already have and what we can do about, you know, some of our existing um, areas. And I think that, you know, uh, developers have a responsibility in that and and that's those are the converse what that responsibility looks like is something that i'm looking forward to to talking about in the near future other council comments i wanted to thank staff but i also want to thank council member bricks who really was instrumental in getting this included in council goals and continued to encourage staff and other council members to, you know, read strong, strong towns and to, you know, pay attention to what was going on and to begin to incorporate this into our community. I think the plan to move in a way that allows the community to understand why we're making the decisions we're making and to buy in um, and to give feedback on things that might not work in our community, even if they work in others or creative ideas that could work here. Um, I like that we are taking this at a, at a pace that allows for all of that to happen. Um, I'm excited about the potential. Um, so our, our poll tonight is to direct staff to continue work on the policies and actions and address the barriers to incremental development as identified in this report and bring the proposals back to the council for further consideration. 
staff would continue to advance proposals and gather input on ADUs, creation of a new zoning district for small scale multifamily housing and modifying off street parking requirements. Council member Bruno. You're muted. Yes. Gladney. Yes. Kyles. Yes. Beck. Yes. Pianfetti. Yes. Foreman. Yes. Stock. Yes. And Bricks. Yes. You have direction. Thank you very much. Thank you. So the next item on our agenda is audience participation. If you wish, wish to speak to the council, please state your name and city of residence and limit your comments to five minutes or less. You need to raise your hand in the Zoom if you want to be recognized. I'm gonna turn on the microphone for a call-in listener, phone number ending in 685. Uh, hello, this is Alan from Urbana. Alan Max Axelrod from Urbana. Can you hear me? Yes. Thank you. Uh, I am calling you today from Decatur, where the Macon County Democrats had a meeting of upwards of two dozen people, and they unanimously voted on a resolution decrying utility shutoffs as a pandemic safety risk calling on the state legislature, in particular the state Senate, to pass House Bill 2877, which provides rent and utility assistance directly to the housing and utility providers, as well as calling on Governor J.B. Pritzker to enact a mm -hmm. mandatory moratorium on utility shutoffs without means testing. And for those who may not be in the loop, Bloomington City Council not only passed an initiative for the same thing last week, but Governor J.B. Pritzker enacted an executive order calling utility shutoffs a pandemic safety risk, and then he provided $80 million in funding to provide support of $1,000 to 80,000 households. Meanwhile, the Attorney General has stated that there are 800,000 households at risk. This is why Monday, the Bloomington City Council doubled down on their initiative and unanimously passed a resolution on utility shutoffs. That is not a radical city council. There are quite a few conservatives on there, and they even censured or disciplined one of their city council persons just last week. They don't like each other, but they all recognize the severity of this issue. The Urbana City Council, before both of them, passed a resolution on this as well. And the question before us is, what will we do in your capacity as the Champaign City Council? Uh, there have been conversations where the ask was relayed to the Neighborhood Services uh, employee, Carrie Wyman, where the advocacy to the governor would be most appropriate. I hope that was done. I also think that given the fact that this is 
literally 13 days after utility shutoffs have resumed in our state, where the two-week threshold is when we start to see utility shutoffs as one of the driving factors of additional COVID cases, as we saw in West Virginia, Tennessee, Indiana, and we're seeing in Pennsylvania and Michigan right now. So if you haven't, please make this a higher priority. And if you have, please do so again. The governor has been listening somewhat, but not clearly enough. So we need people to make sure that he hears us. Have a good night. Thank you. Is there anyone else? Madam Mayor, I'm gonna turn on the microphone for Drake Mateer. Hello, can you all hear me? Yes. Hi, my name is Drake Mateer, uh, resident of Champaign, recent graduate of U of I, co-founder of CC Arc, member of Black Steel's Revolution. Um, I'm here to talk about violence. It's been a minute since I've been on here, but I, it, I, I'm here to talk about violence. Structural violence, domestic violence, homelessness is violence, the violence in terms of gun violence, police violence. It's all structural and it's all systemic. Our investments, the investments of white supremacy has always been into the carceral state, a system of surveillance, the militarist state, one that believes its military must be strong enough to rule over a nation, rule over colonies. Black people are a domestically colonized people. We are a nation. We are a people. The same consciousness that is within white folks that agree to go in line with white supremacy, we have that consciousness and we are a nation. But one thing as a people that, one thing for everybody, regardless of race, regardless of gender, sexuality, religion, is this idea of property that is so capitalist, but then again, you deprive people of pop, pop, uh, property. It's, it, it's an oxymoron, it's ironic. We have enough apartments, enough apartments to house the people in Champaign, Champaign County. There's a housing first approach that actually shows that if you give people housing, they still live on how they do. That is a better form of re-entry into society instead of the carceral state, instead of incarceration and persecution and prosecution. Let's invest into housing that is open for the LGBTQ uh, uh, children who are fleeing from violence within the home. What about the black women, single black women with children? That is the growing, the, the fastest growing population demographic within the homeless population. Those who are fleeing from domestic violence. And again, women of all creeds and colors suffer from domestic violence because patriarchy is real regardless. There needs to be housing that is directed to specific individuals so that we can stop the gun violence in the street, so we can stop that. That is true transformative justice. That is true rehabilitation. Not more funding in the police. And if you ask yourself, where is that money going to come from to build these developments that are for the people, you can defund from the police. Or you can get that money again. We know where you can get it from. 
in this capitalist society. The people need housing. The people need food. The people need safety and shelter. And it's crazy, white America thrives off this white evangelicalism, but Jesus was a communist. Jesus was a socialist. He fed the people. When he went up in the temple and saw the bankers, when he saw the aristocrats, when he saw the bureaucracy in the temples, he kicked over the table. That's the Jesus I know. That's the prophet I know. I don't know what y'all believe. Y'all believe in greed, money, capitalism, racism. But you can give people housing. But it's crazy how I just looked up on the housing authority of Champaign County, and I guess in 2017, the public housing program was replaced with the RAD program. And I believe it was privately, privately owned. So it's crazy. You are already snipped public housing in the bud. And we're going to fight and get that back. You are so lucky. Like I always say, white folks, you've been waiting 400 years for black folks to do to y'all what y'all done did to us. You are lucky we not like y'all because if, if we were like y'all, January 6th would have been happy. We would have just pushed people into the housing. You lucky. You're lucky that that's not how we roll. We could be a lot worse, trust. But we've been peaceful. We've been practice civil disobedience. That Dr. King, the Dr. King I know, but not the whitewashed version that you know. But he would also say housing for all. The Black Panthers would say housing for all. And I believe a housing for all. I need it now. Thank you. Um, Madam Mayor, I'm going to turn on the microphone for Brian Don. Hello, my name is Brian Dunn from Champaign. I uh, just wanted to lend my support to Alan and uh, just, you know, grateful that he's a part of our community and that he does so much work uh, in terms of fighting against utility shutoffs. This is still a pandemic. I'm fully vaccinated myself, but I spent much of the pandemic immunocompromised and I can't imagine just the fear I would have if I didn't have the ability to wash my hands. And I think that city council can and should be doing more to pressure the governor to make sure that, you know, these utility companies cannot take away that basic human right. And while we're talking about basic human rights, I also want to support Drake in his comments, um, not only in housing, but also in racial justice. Unless we center racial justice in the policies and in these initiatives, um, you know, it's mainly going to benefit white people. There might be a small trickle down effect for the black community, but you know, who's pulling the strings, who has the connections, you know, this town is run on nepotism. And unless we, uh, you know, actually center and put racial justice into our policies, we're just continually to, uh, advance these same cycles of white supremacy that have existed throughout this, uh, the entire history of this community. Thank you. Madam Mayor, I'm gonna turn the microphone on for Justin Michael Hendricks. Greetings, my name is Justin Michael Hendricks, 
Champaign resident, Parkland College student, community engineer, creative hidden homeboy. New pantries are coming. Please look out for the announcement this summer. Thank you to everyone for supporting the youth group IN and the memorial for Micaiah Bryant as we must protect our youth. Everyone who supported us and Megan McDonald and the trash team CU for cleaning up in District 3 this past week in Country Brook and Kaufman Park, thank you. This Sunday, May 2nd at three o'clock, please join us in supporting Pain to Peace at Hessel Park for an event to address youth and gun violence. For more information, please visit Pain to Peace. I'll move along and quote Angela Davis, in honor of Clarissa Nickerson Foreman. As a black woman, my politics and political affiliation are bound up with and flow from participation in my people's struggle for liberation. And with the fight of oppression, people all over the world against American imperialism. To have met you within a year of uprising and to learn of your work, it's an honor to give you your roses while still standing. As I look forward to your next, as I continue to quote Angela Davis, I think it's important of doing activist work is precisely the work because it allows you to give back and to consider yourself not as a single individual who may have achieved whatever, but to be a part of an ongoing historical movement. District 3 and the entire Champaign-Urbana family, neighboring communities and city at large. I wanna thank you. What we have done is bigger than Justin Michael Hendricks, but a larger win for us is we now have the blueprint and the playbook on how systemic politics operate within the bounds of this city so that our next move won't be challenged or petitioned. Thank you, Glad, for a national endorsement. Illinois District Rep for the State of Illinois, Lamont Robinson. Equality Illinois for the statewide endorsement. Former Mayor Don Gerard, locally, all my endorsements were earned, not friend circles of county board members or a member client membership. Real work. Honestly, to know that we are not in a party yet finding out how even the most proclaimed progressive parties are filled with saviorships invoking their privilege and telling black women and black queer folks to step aside to push a white privilege or white passing individual is shocking. Nonetheless, even the percentage of votes, it shows we stop the mentality of slave masters that resides within a space of political corruption and false clout for colored appreciation. And speaking of crime, District 3 is still facing high crimes, including a young girl who was a victim this past week of self-defense and then in, in, in return was met with gunshots by the youth themselves. Prior to that, Rita Connolly, street teams, myself and others and various street activists throughout the city have been doing wraparound approach and information to get the city at large informed. Keep doing the work, everybody, as we, as we approach a year of the rebellion. However, I must ask. Where are these poverty pimps lusting for filthy lucre using these impoverished communities as prostitutes in forms of profit? Because most certainly they're not on the scene. When you wanna get into the trenches and let me know, I can show you major things. Oh, and by definition, filthy lucre means shameful profit. In a sentence, for example, one would sell their soul for filthy lucre. Yet by the looks of the arrival of another liquor store, gambling places and more impoverished infrastructures climbing like gun rates to the mayor, and this council itself, how much more are we going to sell and profit our black bodies? As a commissioner, you should resign for these contributions you have signed off on to exist in the areas of District 1 and District 3 with consuming us with more alcoholic avenues than academic to awareness achievements. The black community itself, we also must uphold ourselves in these matters of gun violence too. I have a solution and been meeting with people, ones who sit in the seats that wouldn't want to dare meet with them. To close out in the final quote of Angela Davis, with this country, it needs more unemployed politicians. Deb Frank Finan, the next Jerry Swihart, one could never. Lace them running shoes up. Someone's going to need this campaign. Justin Michael Hendricks, the People's Mayor, signing out. I'm going to turn the microphone on for Eddie Pratt, Jr. Hi, can you hear me clear? Yes. 
great, great. Well, I hope everyone has been uh, safe or safe-ish. It's been a while since I've talked to you. Um, so as things continue to wrap up, I just want to first off want to say solidarity to uh, to Alan, who uh, has been on top of this for months now and uh, is at the head of a zero dollars grassroots coalition of orgs across the state taking on billion dollar utility lobbies for and oh so far moratoriums statewide um, it's my hope that even though you're obviously not first that you will sign on put together put together a resolution and do your part to show that you are going to stand up and protect the people in which you serve. Um, it seems that this meeting seems to buzz around one particular uh, set of terms, things like equity, gentrification. As a man who has a firsthand look at gentrification in two different places, be it both Detroit and also in Alabama after the F5 tornadoes of 2011. This marks the 10-year anniversary of such. I saw the university in Alabama, the University of Alabama, buy up the land that was destroyed, the, the Black neighborhoods that were destroyed, and today was, re you know, houses rebuilt there? Was it affordable living there? No, there were condominiums. Average rent going up from $450, to $700, $1,200. Now, when we both know that with the generational wealth gap kind of created by the uh, New Deal, which also created the North End and everything that we know of, you know, this society. Things like these are only uh, gateways to how gentrification starts. So though on the surface, this sounds like good intentions, my hope is that this doesn't go unchecked because when it does, uh, a very unhealthy system that has been unhealthy for a particular set of people will continue to do so. So as it was also said by Drake, solidarity to him, we have a surplus of housing here in Champaign. We have a HUD number of 141 homeless people. Probably is a good bit of more than that, but still, even so, if we were to double that number, we would still have a surplus of housing. Will greed get in the way of your morality? That is the question that is asked of all of us every day. But in your uh, position, you have the obligation and the responsibility to do something about it. My challenge to the city of Champaign, given that we have now a Black Lives Matter uh, sign 
I realize that there are things that need to be had in the black community. And I believe in solutions. I believe in alternatives. I believe in the SWIFT program and for what it's supposed to do. But 300 students is not enough to swing equitable change for those neighborhoods and those families. A million dollars went into that. Given that the state has made a hundred million dollars plus in just weed sales in the last month, I don't know exactly how much champagne gets, but I'm pretty sure y'all get a good little bit out of having, what, three, four dispensaries in the city. Nonetheless, I don't see money as an issue. I would like to see a direct, a direct commitment to uh, racial equity in the form of matching that million dollars that was formed by uh, Rep. Ammons and the Black Caucus. Do that, make that sign real, and give the people a vehicle to fight against their own gentrification, to fight for their own neighborhoods. This is what equity should look like. Thank you. I'm going to turn the microphone on for Bo David Barber. Hi, can y'all hear me? <clears throat> yes. Thank you. Um, so I really didn't even think I was going to comment tonight. I was just listening. And anyways, like, I don't know. Maybe I didn't do enough of my own homework because I'm busy trying to study for finals, like, you know, for soil mechanics and computer uh, computer vision processing. That's a lot of fun, as in it's not a lot of fun. Racking my brains trying to solve this stuff, killing me. But, you know, just with all this incremental development, um, like one of the commenters said earlier, you know, if you don't focus racial justice, um, you know, into this conversation, um, then then we're gonna have some problems down the road. Clarissa brought up, as she always does, um, a lot of really great points about like, you know, if we're making sure, if we're not making sure that stuff like this is accessible to, you know, um, a diverse set of people, we're not gonna have people looking like, you know, like that look like Clarissa or Council or, or Will Kyles, they, it's going to be a lot of people that look like, you know, they look like, you know, the rest of y'all on council. Um, and um, just, I think, I think I find it, a, I, I'm going to be kind of petty. I find it a tad suspicious when somebody calls in and says, don't let, worry about other future commenters and don't worry about, you know, like just, you know, the silent majority supports anyone, whatever you do. That's sus. Like, I'm not going to lie. That's pretty suspicious, especially from someone who's just trying to get certain properties developed somewhere. And then the community, then the people who lived in that community spoke out against him. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry, but whatever is Paul or I don't know, whatever his name is, something like P or F or whatever. I don't know. Paul Flagellum. I don't know. Um, like that's pretty suspicious i i'm just i'm not gonna lie i just i find that problematic because you know th this yeah sure like not everybody listens to this meetings all the time nobody's gonna hear my comments and stuff like that obviously you know um 
Uh, and it's, but it, it, to just say that you, they to ignore these people, I mean, I know you're all smarter than this. You're all smarter than that. You're going to listen to your constituents, right? Because these are your constituents. Th- these are people that you should be li- listening to. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's kind of funny to me at this point, but this is starting to become somewhat cathartic. Um, but yeah. Also, um, in regards to like utility shutoffs, like hopefully y'all can, you know, y'all can work with the No Ammo and Shutoffs Coalition, try and figure out some stuff with trying to come up with a resolution because like we, there, there are people in the No Ammo and Shutoffs Coalition who are getting their, how, got their utilities shut off and they were paying their bills. So these are people paying their bills and they got their utility shut off. We are in a mess. We are in a mess. Oh man. Um, actually give me like like five seconds and I can look up. I made like this really cool database because I'm an I'm an engineer. We love Excel sheets. I mean, maybe maybe it's just like maybe it's engineers like me, but we love Excel sheets. Anyways, um, because I don't want to have to actually study and do my other responsibilities and stuff like that, you know. Except I do. I'm still tearing out all the responsibilities of teaching and grading 40 students for a course that was supposed to originally be taught in person was the point of the course. But because of COVID, I'm now having to teach these students online. So that's only a lot of extra time. We're also carrying out three different research projects. But, you know, when people are getting their utilities shut off, it's kind of hard for me to focus. But, hey, ADHD does that to you, right? <laughs> Heck of a thing, let me tell you. Um, but I made a little shutoffs database. And I've been looking through the Illinois Commerce Commission. Um, or compliance reports. And let me tell you, it's, it is not fun stuff from a data point perspective. Amazing from everything else in truly incredibly terrifying, but man, if my internet's going to not load in time, this is going to be sad. I got like 20. Oh, here, here we go. So for um, zip codes, um, listed as Urbana, the main thing uh, with Urbana listed as the main city, um, there was 131 shutoffs in March. That was just March. Champagne has had 1,774 shutoffs overall. There's more than two people a household, so y'all do the math on that. Anyways, Clarissa, I'm going to miss having you on council. Good night. We'll turn the microphone on for Rita Connerly. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Phil Facelabo, I think that's who you're talking about. I'm listening to you. Anyhow, Rita Connerly, I'm a resident here in Champaign. I want to start off by saying, Justin Michael Hendricks, I am thankful to work beside you in these streets as we genuinely, without titles, have provided the needs without question. I know that both individually and collectively, we will continue to to challenge the systems and go against the grain, causing that good trouble that John Lewis spoke of for the betterment of our community. Thank you, Alan, for your continuous push on the no Amron cutoff, shutoffs. Brian Dunn, thank you for using your privilege to amplify the changes needed to address structural racism. Drake, as always, preacher man, thank you for getting on here and educating our, um, our greater audience. And council, woman, foreman, thank you. 
I come to this council bittersweet as our community is still under the attacks of gun violence in areas that have been marginalized, lack opportunities and still impacted by the inequities of resources that are not accessible to us. We have a coalition with names of persons that have for years been a detriment to the same black and brown people that should be receiving help in the city. I've heard the term mentioned poverty pimps and that's exactly what we're doing benefiting off of the backs of those most vulnerable and in need. When a community creates hardships upon its most impoverished people, we can't expect anything good to come from it. And this is what we are continuously seeing, the violence across the city. However, let's speak that if hypothetically we were to end the violence, there would be no need for those jobs. Our city's budget is not one that truly reflects concern for its people, the people that are most hurting. Where are the line items dedicated to bringing opportunities for advancement and betterment for our youth? We don't even have emergency resources for victims of serious crimes, especially innocent bystanders. Just last week, while admitted in the ICU at the hospital with my own sick child, I was awakened by the screeching cries of a mother whose child had just become a victim of a gun violence while at her own home. <clears throat> Anytime gun violence strikes in our community, I'm affected, but this one hit really close. I had heard and seen on the news the incident, spoke with a nurse about how terrible things are getting in Champaign. She too had shared a conversation that she and her staff were having about not being safe to even walk around the local parks. It wasn't until that moment that I learned that this victim was my children's cousin. I offered my serious apologies to the mother we bonded and talked about the incident. I offered to her the support during our now stay, knowing that hers would be more extended than mine. And together we explored the options that she would not now have moving forward. To learn that investigators didn't reach out into her until days following the shooting, no social service agencies contacted her, no coalition, no trauma support, no gun violence prevention workers, nobody. The only one person that did was a black administrator from the schools that reached, up, reached out to set up a fund. But this single mother of four who must now transition her life to a daughter who was possibly paralyzed still needs help. It's not by choosing. People who live in areas that are most impacted by violence want the violence to go on in their communities. <laughs> We say we need more police, but police are not preventing these crimes. For the last hundred centuries, we have seen violence perpetuated on black and brown bodies from policing and racial violence forced upon us um, by policies that our government has implemented. In order to create a different way of community, we have to build from the bottom up by supporting those people who most need us. With that, I'm going to close by state by stating that we need to support the food pantries. Those are there and have been for nearly a year to address food security, food insecurity, excuse me, and it is working. I hope that you continue to look to support hidden homeboy projects and programs. These programs are created to offer opportunity to those who most need us, our youth. Thank you, have a good night. Thank you. Is there anyone else?
Madam Mayor, I see no other hands raised. All right. So we're moving on to council and city manager comments. Um, certainly you're able to speak about anything, but we do have on our agenda recognition of our three council members who are retiring this evening. So if anybody would like to start with those types of comments, I'd be happy to recognize you. Council member Kyles. So I wrote some comments down, but uh, I will um, go pretty much off the, no, I think I'll stay the script. It'll be easier and more succinct. So as it pertains to, um, to serving on the city council, I wanna thank all three council members. Um, I think no one knows the, um, the dedication, the time, the energy, um, the concerns to be able to, to deal with you, other people's concerns and to be able to look into other people's insights while often um, facing your own um, um, life and trying to, to fix your own issues is probably one of the most um, challenging and most misunderstood things. Um, um, well, may, maybe under, um, under misunderstood aspects of city council, but I wanna thank you all, all three, but individually, and one of the th list of things that I remember uh, most um, uh, about each. So council member Foreman, I still remember uh, the first time we met, I think at OHOP and the issues that, um, that we talked about, I still do believe and thank you for the voice that you represented about what it was to to struggle and to 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 talk about it in its rawest forms. Um, sometimes um, that 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 realness that is uh, that we all want and we desire is something when you hear it and 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 you you try to as such as the the conversation last week even about the 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 gunshots uh, that hit. Uh, home, um, hit home more than not in that working on gun violence and working on issues that, uh, that you were most passionate and still are passionate about, I don't believe will go, um, th that work has to be continued to be carried on. But I thank you for all of the things that, and the insights that you did provide and that you did give. And like I said, one of the most toughest things, um, is to be able to 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 have poise publicly when inside uh, there are a lot of things going on, and I thank you for your efforts and your work, um, uh, Councilmember Bricks. I uh, I guess I I guess I eat a lot, <laughs> so I remember all the times that I that I ate and uh, the the things that we talked about. Uh, one of them being your major issue tonight uh, when you talked about incremental development. Um, I definitely um, appreciated just your the energy that you provided. And as you, it's interesting because as you first came on council, I remember you being like really, really quiet. And then as you became more, um, I don't want to say comfortable, but vocal, but being watching you be able to to communicate 
uh, your positions and your points. Uh, Greg Stock, so I want to thank you for your, your service, and I know that it'll continue. Um, I know just like Council Member Foreman, your service will continue. It doesn't stop or end with council. Um, I think that it continues. And last but not least, council member Stock, uh, I do, uh, the one thing that I do remember uh, the most that still sticks out of my head is that we still are supposed to go get that, uh, we're supposed to still go to that restaurant. And I remember you calling me and just like, man, what happened? But just your, your attentiveness, um, working behind the scenes, um, as it pertained to some of the things that, you know, uh, uh, we worked on together uh, was big and important. And just want to um, thank you again for the work that you do. Uh, the issues that we talked about tonight, and um, I'll, I'll pro perhaps save this for another time, but I do know that gun violence is, is relevant. It's important. It's not something that this city um, brushes under the, the rug. In fact, um, um, you know, I, I, there's always things that we can do to, to continue to improve the process. So I hate to say that, that you know, I don't want to go there. I just want to say that gun violence and the, 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 the elimination of it means something uh, to us as a city, to us as a community, and for, for, to, to the people that are, are in the audience, and also the people that are on staff, as well as the council, it means something and it affects us. Um, um, it affects us in a way that is sometimes, uh, uh, yeah, it affects us. So don't think that those words are not going, uh, your words and your work are not going unheard Every day we're trying to, to, to do something better. Every day there are people working around the clock. We have to continue to work as a community to, to, to deal with this issue. But every single day and every single moment, there's somebody working to improve uh, the conditions of, of human beings, people. So with that, I want to thank the, the council members for their service and um, just look forward to continuing to work in the future. Anyone else? Councilmember Pam Fetty. Okay, thank you. Um, I wanted to, um, I also wrote some stuff, but it's a combination of what you wrote and what you feel at the moment. Um, but I wanted to extend my appreciation and gratitude to Councilmember Foreman and Councilmember Stock and Councilmember Bricks. Um, it's really been a privilege to serve alongside of you. Um, Clarissa, um, I remember our conversations and I have learned a lot about diversity and equity and compromising in conversations through our conversations. Um, you were probably one of the first friends I made on council that um, allowed me to share my perspectives and respected where I was coming from and helped me um, see the different perspectives that there were. And so I will always value that. Um, and I'll always also, as we were talking and I was thinking about um, the memories that we've shared, like the pancake breakfast that we served and um, 
to the city staff and just those informal moments where um, as a community, we came together and um, just the conversations about how we could build things better together. And I don't think your advocacy will end. Um, and I think it's only just beginning. So it's really, I've learned a lot. Um, so I thank you for sharing um, conversations with me. Uh, Greg, um, your insights help move council along in a lot of different ways. As um, council member Kyle said, um, you had a lot of inside um, perspectives that allowed us to stop and think and take pause. And sometimes the questions you asked, you asked because we needed to think things from varying perspectives and they were tough questions to ask, but somebody had to ask them and you did. And I always appreciated um, having to take a moment and reflect and to think about things um, that even though you were going to vote one way, you always asked a question that helped us think about things from a broader perspective. And I'll, I'll miss that and having that on council. Um, and I'll also miss walking the parades and hearing Mr. Stock, Mr. Stock, Mr. Stock. Um, I've, I've learned how to walk very slow and very fast um, in those parades. So um, know that you are very valued in this community and what you bring to it um, has meaning and that has not gone unnoticed. Um, Angie, um, we are um, Dias buddies and um, tonight on my screen, we are next to each other. So I think it's very fitting that as you are um, retiring tonight that we are um, next to each other, at least on my screen. So um, I've appreciated when I first started on council, you were there to help me with all the tips and tricks and knowing whether I was supposed to say here or say yes, because sometimes that was very good, probably still is. So hopefully you'll text me to remind me if I'm supposed to uh, say yes. But you too asked very challenging questions and you always brought perspectives and um, new ideas and innovative thinking and um, your thoroughness, I, I think. Um, I don't know who I will be sitting next to um, when we are back in person, but I don't think um, maybe they will have the detailed notes um, or um, the, the, uh, the highlights and the underlines and everything in, in the council binder that you did. Um, but it, I always respected how much you took to heart and tried to apply what was in um, the readings and um, how much this community means to you was very apparent. Um, and I also wanted, um, so, so thank you all for um, your service and what I have learned from you and what I believe I will continue to learn from you because I believe that you will continue to bring service in many different ways to this community. Um, and um, to uh, Ms. Connerly, um, I did want it to extend um, my um, thoughts to your family. Um, my, my youngest son was a classmate of um, the, the student that you mentioned um, who did, um, was a victim of the gun violence. So um, I, I was thinking a lot about how as a community, we are all affected in very different ways. And I just wanted to let you know that in our own household, it um, was a, a difficult time. Um, I know the schools have been handling it in, in, in helping classmates through this, but um, this student um, 
seems to be very well um, liked and um, very, um, I guess, um, many are, are hopeful for her recovery and for her family to be able to get through this. So um, I just wanted to let you know that. Thank you, anyone else? Councilmember Bruno. I too want to add my thanks and the and on behalf of the all the people of the city of Champaign that we represent, their collective thanks to the three of you for the work and the service that you've given to your fellow neighbors. Uh, on behalf of the of of what you each uh, saw to be in the best interest of the community. Um, <clears throat> You all took your roles on city council very seriously, as was evidenced by uh, Clarissa's uh, strong advocacy for issues that are important to her and to her community, and for uh, Greg's uh, background in uh, education and his uh, broad sense of knowledge and Angie in, in real estate and other issues the homework you folks did, the well thought out questions revealed to everybody that you were not only familiar with the issues which we would be uh, discussing and deciding, but that you had thought about them and done your homework so you could steer the community policy in the correct direction. So uh, I will miss uh, the input from all three of you and I thank you for uh, uh, putting your hearts into this uh, job as you did. And I hope that uh, you will pick up the phone or send an email uh, to weigh in on issues as we cross them in the future or to be available for advice uh, when we need it. Thank you. Sorry, anyone else have any comments? I will add my voice of thanks for the service of these three retiring council members. Um, you know, Greg, I think you know every pothole and every sidewalk that needs to be repaired in the city of Champaign. Um, and I say that tongue in cheek, but it was a great service to your constituents and having somebody that um, cared that deeply about city infrastructure and was in contact regularly with our public works department is an important role on the city council. And I appreciate that you filled it. Um, Angie, I already said, Thank you with respect to bringing incremental development. Um, but I also want to touch on what Vanna talked about, which is your attention to detail and the research that you brought, taking every issue very seriously, asking staff questions prior to the meeting and being prepared in a way that allowed you to really make great decisions and help the rest of us um, gain knowledge about issues. So thank you for that. And Clarissa, thank you as well. Um, you listen to every voice 
you certainly listen to the voices in your district the most, but I know that you also were reached out to by people from all over the city and you listened to everyone, you thoughtfully considered their input and you really exposed council to a diversity of opinions that we would not have had, but for your service on council. So thank you for that. Um, I will always remember our trip to Des Moines and loading everybody up on a bus. And, um, you know, it was great fun. And we learned a lot about um, things that ideas we could bring back to our community for economic development. But we also had the opportunity to get to know each other better. And it was a great trip. I will remember the smoke alarm um, blitzes where we went out and spent time putting those up. And, you know, just all of the time that we were able to spend um, not only serving our community, but getting to know each other as individuals. And I really thank you all for your service. Um, before we go to city manager and general council comment, I know that we've been talking about the three of you. I don't know if any of the three of you want to say anything. Councilmember Foreman. I don't do well with sappy stuff. So thank y'all for all y'all comments. I appreciate it. Not always earned. So thank you very much. Um, I want to take my special time, my retiring time to, uh, you know, give a shout out to Fred Stevens. He has put up with me for six years. His legal department has put up with me for six years. And I really appreciate, um, you know, his his uh, putting up with me. And I, I hope that, you know, my retiring will make uh, Fred and the legal department sleep a little well at night. I also um, hope that Dorothy, the city manager, you have been amazing, but I also hope that my retirement will help you as well sleep at night. So I appreciate all the comments, but I'm hoping that, you know, I give a little bit of rest and some ease to some of y'all. So I appreciate it. The time has been enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Councilmember Bricks. Sorry, I was just going to jump in on Greg. Sorry, Greg. Um, so I'm really, really appreciative of this entire experience. You don't, you can ask all the questions in the world about what's it going to be like and what's the time commitment and what exactly do you do? And until you're in the role, it's, it's hard to explain. And so thank you all for your comments and for your support and for sharing this journey, um, with me and with all of us. Um, Thank you to the amazing city staff for all the time. Many of you have been very, very patient because I ask a ton of questions and I go off on tangents that I want to know all the history. I need to know all the information. Um, and so thank you all for your expertise and for your support and for your patience with me. Um, and I also want to say a special thank you to the citizens of the city of Champaign. Thank you for your for the phone calls, thank you for the emails, thanks for showing up at meetings and for expressing your concerns and for sharing your ideas. And that's what makes local government so special. And so I just really appreciate and have appreciated the opportunity to be a part of it. So thanks. Councilmember Stock. 
Um, <clears throat> before I start, I kind of just want to take a, it, it would, I feel like it would be remiss of us if we didn't maybe take a quick moment to remember a fallen firefighter, Trevor Henderhorst, who passed, I think I said that right, uh, Henderhorst, who passed away over the weekend. Fire departments had two tough losses in the past several months, and I think we should probably acknowledge that um, briefly anyway. Um, having said thank that, um, I want to thank all, uh, most of my colleagues, past and present, both both our current council, but also certainly council members, Michael Ledoux, Paul Faraci, and Vic McIntosh, who were here when I got here, and all of the guidance. And um, certainly I learned something from each and every one of you. Um, city managers always said that we're sort of like a family and um, a little dysfunctional at times, but we sort of operate, <laughs> operate like a family. And I think that for the most part, she is spot on on that. Um, one thing I have learned over the past five years is I am definitely not a politician. Um, I this is this this week marks the end of 20 years of service to the city of Champaign and boards, commissions, council, something or other. Um, <clears throat> HPC, police and fire, VCC, library council, um, and I think that we all try to make decisions that represent the citizens we serve, not just what we always want or we always believe, but it's not about. For most of us, at least, it's not about the ego. It's not about power or anything like that. We come here every Tuesday night to make decisions to make our community a better place. And we know that not everybody's going to be happy all the time, but we do the best we can, and we try to make sure everybody has a voice. So for that, kind of piggybacking on Councilmember Kyle's a little bit, um, I just want to salute my colleagues who are willing to put themselves out there, give their time, energy, for sometimes little to no thanks, but simply because it's the right thing to do for our community. So. Thank you all. Um, uh, you are right, though, Mayor, that I will probably. Um, oh, Fred, you just popped up on my screen. Um, you are right, though, Mayor, in that I will probably um, save my entire council salary and gas from not driving around looking at streetlights, potholes, sidewalks, gaps, uh, missing stop signs. The public works department will be happy to, they know me when I call. Uh, so they will they will undoubtedly uh, not have to listen to me as much as anymore. Um, sorry, like I said, I had two and a half pages, so I'm gonna narrow it down. Um, I do wanna leave on a high note. Um, and the best way I think I can do that is really to acknowledge the staff that makes the city run. Um, at the end of the day, um, we show up on Tuesday nights, we make decisions to help them do their work, but they're really the ones doing the work. Um, we don't. I hate that we don't get to be in chambers on this last meeting and we don't get to see people for the last time and sit in our chairs for the last time and so on and so forth. But we really are truly fortunate to have the dedicated people that we have working in the city. Um, I've learned more about drainage, fire apparatus, tip districts, sparrow systems, and slurry seal than I ever thought possible. Um, Lastly, to my favorite next chair neighbors, a special shout out to Marilyn and Glenda for always being there next to me with a smile. So I will miss you both. Um, and to those that were here when I first joined city council, thank you for the opportunity to hire me as a supporting actor for the best reality TV show in Champaign. Thank you. Thank you. Is there any other council comment? Council member Gladney. Yeah, sorry, my screen froze earlier, so I yeah, kind of got away from me. I just wanted to to thank uh, Angie and Clarissa and Greg for for being willing to do this. Um, I will miss you all. Um, the last time we all got to meet together in person was March 13th last year. 
so it's been an interesting 13 months since then. Um, kind of like to echo Greg, I, I wish we could have uh, had this in person and, and, um, and whatnot, but uh, um, yeah, thank you. Anyone else? City manager. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, I too, on behalf of all the city staff, the city staff that um, have worked before us, because there have been a lot of people that have come and go during the terms of the departing council members, I want to thank you on behalf of everyone who works at the city for your leadership and guidance over your terms. Um, you know, council member stock kind of stole a little bit of my thunder by, you know, mentioning the family thing. Um, officially, um, we work for you. Officially, this is a professional relationship. But what we know about Champaign is that we are one community. Um, and the staff pour their heart and souls into this work, but we can't do this work without the leadership of the people who are elected to represent the community. And Councilmember Foreman, Councilmember Bricks, Councilmember Stock, your passion and your advocacy has been evident. Um, it has been a privilege to serve you and to help execute your vision. And I can guarantee you that many of the things that you have taught us in your leadership and many of the things that you have advocated for are now well instituted into the work program of the city. And we will continue to work on those important issues that you have brought to us. And we will continue to serve the citizens with the lessons we have learned through your leadership. Um, and although this is a professional relationship, um, we are family, we care about you deeply, and we wish you well. Thank you. And so with that, I need a motion to adjourn. Madam Mayor, for my grand finale motion, I move we adjourn. Second. Will the clerk please call the roll? Council Member Stock? Yes. Beck? Yes. Bricks? Yes. Bruno? Yes. Ormond? No. Okay, yes. I'm just going to miss saying no. So, yes. <laughs> Gladney? <laughs> yes. Kyles? Yes. Betty? Yes. Mayor Finan? Yes, we are adjourned. We'll see you next week. Same channel, new new cast. I was say, or not, yeah. <laughs>